Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com I'd like to begin this meeting by saying that I am a fair person, a straight shooter. I do not hold my tongue. So I must tell you this, that I had nothing to do with any of you being hired. If I had my druthers, there'd be at least one Negro writer in this room, and that Afro does not qualify you, my Jewish friend. (laughs) Having said that, I would like to open the floor to some of your questions and comments. Look, I agree with you. I think it would be better to have some African-American writers, but, you know, for whatever reason... They're not here. Maybe they couldn't find any people with experience, or they wouldn't work for the pay, or they refused to work on the show. Perhaps they couldn't put their crack pipes down long enough to apply. (laughs) Pierre, I don't know. Mr. Delacroix, I don't know. Mr. Delacroix, I don't know, and I don't think anybody here does know. But what I do know is that this is going to be a unique experience. I am a damn good writer, and I am ready to go to work. Thank you for rallying the troops, Peter. I have always loved the format of Rowan and Martin's laughing. <laughs> or uh, pig meat Markham, uh, you know, here come the judge. Here come the judge. You know, but, you know, I think we should look back at those 70 shows, which were groundbreaking, you know, and I'm from Iowa, as we all know. And, um, you know, my first experience of the black people of uh, uh, Africa is that those shows like the Jeffersons, yes. you know, and George and Wheezy. Wheezy. You know? Come in, you know, better, better than the Jeffersons? Good times. Kid, dynamite! Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, 
April 20th, 2018, so I have been told. This is our seventh study session on Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. The audio that we began with, I think I said somewhere along the way in my bashing of Marvel's Black Panther, I said that there are very few films, books, any sort of narratives that have been produced in the last 25 years that I have enjoyed very few exceptions Spike Lee has produced a few of those exceptions one of them being Bamboozled one of my favorite films deals directly with racism white supremacy the lovely Jada Pinkett Smith uh, is in it Damon Wayans one of our guests uh, MC Search uh, was in the program The Roots uh, Savion Glover uh, man, lots of Michael Rappaport, suspected race soldier, lots of interesting folks uh, in the cast. But that scene in Bamboozled where Damon Wayne's character, uh, Pierre Delacroix, he is a writer for uh, a television network and he's written a script for a TV show. And so then they hire all of these white writers to come in and help him edit right craft this show and he thinks that he's going to be in charge of course that is not the case the whites take over and make it what they want it to be but that scene I was watching bamboozled uh, this week for the first time in what feels like a number of years the film came out I believe in 1999 maybe the year 2000 or 99 anyway it's been a long time anyway I was watching it and that scene came up and it immediately brought me to thinking of Angie Thomas's book. And I think that is exactly the type of scenario that could have happened with this text. If Angie Thomas, a black female wrote it and then the white editors and what have you, they come in and do their editing and suggesting and Oh, you know, let's pep it up a little bit and let's add that. And that exact friend, I feel like that's exactly what we've heard, what we've read over the past several weeks with this text, the way that the whites were relating to black people. Remember the Jeffersons and George and Wheezy and remember uh, good times. It just switch it around, update it to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Tupac and the other rap lyrics and just slightly newer references, cultural references, the Jordans and what have you, just slightly newer cultural references for white people to think of and relate to Negros. That's exactly what I think we've heard through the past, whatever it is, seven weeks of reading this book. Anyway, uh, we are picking up. So we're at the start of part three, eight weeks after it, death of a black male, and then chapter 20 specifically. Context of White Supremacy, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, allegedly. Audio segment number one. Part three. Eight weeks after it. Twenty. Three hours. That's how long I was in the grand jury room. Ms. Monroe asked me all kinds of questions. What angle was Khalil at when he was shot? 
Where did he pull his license and registration from? How did Officer Cruz remove him from the car? Did Officer Cruz seem angry? What did he say? She wanted every single detail. I gave her as much as I could. It's been over two weeks since I talked to the grand jury, and now we're waiting for their decision, which is similar to waiting for a meteor to hit. You know it's coming. You're just not exactly sure when and where it'll hit, and there ain't shit you can do in the meantime but keep living. So we're living. The sun is out today, but the rain fell in sheets as soon as we pulled into the parking lot of Williamson. When it rains like that while the sun's out, Nana says the devil is beating his wife. Plus, it's Friday the 13th, a.k.a. the devil's day, according to Nana. She's probably holed up in the house like it's doomsday. Seven and I dash from the car into the school. The atrium's busy as usual, with people talking to their little cliques or playing around. The school year's almost over, so everybody's goof-off levels are at their highest. And white kid goofing off is a category of its own. I'm sorry, but it is. Yesterday, a sophomore rode down the stairs in the janitor's garbage can. His dumb ass got suspension and a concussion. Stupid. I wiggle my toes. The one day I wear chucks, it decides to rain. They're miraculously dry. You good? Seven asks. And I doubt it's about the rain. He's been way more protective lately. Ever since we got word that King's still pissed, I dry snitched. I heard Uncle Carlos tell Daddy it gave the cops another reason to watch King closely. Unless King threw the brick, he hasn't done anything. Yet. So Seven's always on guard, even all the way out here at Williamson. Yeah, I tell him, I'm good. All right. He gives me dap and goes off to his locker. I head for mine. Haley and Maya are talking at Maya's locker nearby. Actually, Maya's doing most of the talking. Haley's got her arms folded and rolls her eyes a lot. She sees me down the hall and gets this smug expression. Perfect, she says when I get closer. The liar is here. Excuse me? It's way too early for this bullshit. Why don't you tell Maya how you flat out lied to us? What? Haley hands me two pictures. One is Khalil's thug shot, as Daddy calls it. One of the pictures they've shown on the news. Haley printed it off the internet. Khalil wears a smirk gripping a handful of money and throwing up a sideways peace sign. The other picture, he's 12. I know because I'm 12 in it, too. It's my birthday party at this laser tag place downtown. Khalil's on one side of me, shoveling strawberry cake into his mouth, and Haley's on my other side, grinning for the camera along with me. I thought he looked familiar, Haley says as smugly as she looks. He is the Khalil you knew, isn't he? I stare at the two Khalils. The pictures only show so much. For some people, the thug shot makes him look just like that, a thug. But I see somebody who was happy to finally have some money in his hand. Damn where it came from. And the birthday picture? I remember how Khalil ate so much cake and pizza he got sick. His grandma hadn't gotten paid yet, 
and food was limited in their house. I knew the whole Khalil. That's who I've been speaking up for. I shouldn't deny any part of him, not even at Williamson. I hand the pictures back to Haley. Yeah, I knew him. So what? Don't you think you owe us an explanation? She says. You owe me an apology, too. Um, what? You've basically picked fights with me because you were upset about what happened to him, she says. You even accused me of being racist. But you have said and done some racist stuff. So, Maya shrugs, whether Star lied or not doesn't make it okay. Minority Alliance activated. So, since I unfollowed her Tumblr because I didn't want to see any more pictures of that mutilated kid on my dashboard, his name was Emmett Till, says Maya. Whatever. So, because I didn't want to see that disgusting shit, I'm racist? No, Maya says. What you said about it was racist. And your Thanksgiving joke was definitely racist. Oh, my God. Are you still upset about that? Haley says. That was so long ago. Doesn't make it okay, I say. And you can't even apologize for it. I'm not apologizing because it was only a joke, she shouts. It doesn't make me a racist. I'm not letting you guys guilt trip me like this. What's next? You want me to apologize because my ancestors were slave masters or something stupid? Bitch, I take a deep breath. Way too many people are watching. I cannot go angry black girl on her. Your joke was hurtful, I say, as calmly as I can. If you give a damn about Maya, you'd apologize and at least try to see why it hurt her. It's not my fault she can't get over a joke from freaking freshman year. Just like it's not my fault you can't get over what happened to Khalil. So I'm supposed to get over the fact he was murdered? Yes, get over it. He was probably going to end up dead anyway. Are you serious? Maya says. He was a drug dealer and a gangbanger, Haley says. Somebody was going to kill him eventually. Get over it? I repeat. She folds her arms and does this little neck movement. Um, yeah. Isn't that what I said? The cop probably did everyone a favor. One less drug dealer on the... I move Maya out the way and slam my fist against the side of Haley's face. It hurts, but damn, it feels good. Haley holds her cheek, her eyes wide, and her mouth open for several seconds. Bitch! She shrieks. She goes straight for my hair like girls usually do, but my ponytail is real. She's not pulling it out. I hit at Haley with my fist, and she slaps and claws me upside my head. I push her off, and she hits the floor. Her skirt goes up, and her pink drawers are out for everybody to see. Laughter erupts around us. Some people have their phones out. I'm no longer Williamson star or even Garden Heights star. I'm pissed. I kick and hit at Haley, cuss words flying out my mouth. People gather around us chanting, fight, fight, and one fool even shouts, world star. Shit, I'm going to end up on that ratchet site. 
Somebody yanks my arm, and I turn, face to face with Remy, Haley's older brother. You crazy bit! Before he can finish bitch, a blur of dreadlocks charges at us and pushes Remy back. Get your hands off my sister, Seven says. And then they're fighting. Seven throws blows like nobody's business, knocking Remy upside his head with several good hooks and jabs. Daddy used to take both of us to the boxing gym after school. Two security guards run over. Dr. Davis, the headmaster, marches toward us. An hour later, I'm in Mama's car. Seven trails us in his Mustang. All four of us have been sentenced to three days suspension, despite Williamson's zero-tolerance policy. Haley and Remy's dad, a Williamson board member, thought it was outrageous. He said Seven and I should be expelled because we started it, and that Seven shouldn't be allowed to graduate. Dr. Davis told him, Given the circumstances, and he looked straight at me, suspension will suffice. He knows I was with Khalil. This is exactly what they expect you to do, Mama says. Two kids from Garden Heights acting like you ain't got any sense. They, with a capital T. There's them, and then there's us. Sometimes they look like us and don't realize they are us. But she was running her mouth, saying Khalil deserved. I don't care if she said she shot him herself. People are going to say a whole lot, Star. It doesn't mean you hit somebody. You got to walk away sometimes. You mean walk away and get shot like Khalil did? She sighs. Baby, I understand. No, you don't, I say. Nobody understands. I saw the bullets rip through him. I sat there in the street as he took his last breath. I've had to listen to people try to make it seem like it's okay he was murdered. As if he deserved it. But he didn't deserve to die, and I didn't do anything to deserve seeing that shit. WebMD calls it a stage of grief, anger but I doubt I'll ever get to the other stages. This one slices me into millions of pieces. Every time I'm whole and back to normal, something happens to tear me apart, and I'm forced to start all over again. The rain lets up. The devil stops beating his wife, but I beat the dashboard, punching it over and over, numb to the pain of it. I want to be numb to the pain of all of this. Let it out, Munch. My mom rubs my back. Let it out. I pull my polo over my mouth and scream until there aren't any screams left in me. If there are any, I don't have the energy to get them out. I cry for Khalil, for Natasha, even for Haley. Because damn if I didn't just lose her for good, too. When we turn on our street, I'm snot-nosed and wet-eyed finally numb. A gray pickup and a green Chrysler 300 are parked behind Daddy's truck in the driveway. Mama and Seven have to park in front of the house. What is this man up to? Mama says. She looks over at me. You feel better? I nod. What other choice do I have? She leans over and kisses my temple. We'll get through this. I promise. We get out. 
I'm 100% sure the cars in the driveway belong to King Lords and Garden Disciples. In Garden Heights, you can't drive a car that's gray or green unless you claim a set. I expect yelling and cussing when I get inside, but all I hear is Daddy saying, It don't make no sense, man. For real, it don't. It's standing room only in the kitchen. We can't even get in because some guys are in the doorway. Half of them have green somewhere in their outfits, garden disciples. The others have light gray on somewhere, Cedar Grove King Lords. Mr. Reuben's nephew, Tim, sits beside Daddy at the table. I've never noticed that cursive GD tattoo on his arm. We don't know when the grand jury gonna make their decision, Daddy says. But if they decide not to indict, y'all gotta tell these little dudes not to burn this neighborhood down. What you expect them to do then, says a GD at the table. Folks tired of the bullshit, Mav. Straight up, says the King Lord Goon, who's at the table too. His long plaits have ponytail holders on them like I used to wear back in the day. Nothing we can do about it. That's bullshit, says Tim. We can do something. We can all agree the riots got out of hand, right? Says Daddy. He gets a bunch of yes and writes. Then we can make sure it doesn't go down like that again. Talk to these kids. Get in their heads. Yeah, they mad. We all mad. But burning down our neighborhood ain't gonna fix it. Our, says the GD at the table. Nigga, you said you moving. To the suburbs, Goon mocks. You getting a minivan too, Mav? They all laugh at that. Daddy doesn't, though. I'm moving. So what? I still have a store here. And I'll still give a damn what happens here. Who is it gonna benefit if the whole neighborhood burns down? Damn sure won't benefit none of us. We gotta be more organized next time, says Tim. For one, make sure our brothers and sisters know they can't destroy black-owned businesses. That messes it up for all of us. For real, says Daddy. And I know me and Tim out the game, so we can't speak on some things. But all these territory wars got to be put aside somehow. This is bigger than some street shit. And honestly, all the street shit got these cops thinking they can do whatever they want. Yeah. I feel you on that, says Goon. Y'all got to come together somehow, man, Daddy says, for the sake of the garden. The last thing they'd ever expect is some unity around here, right? Daddy slaps palms with Goon and the garden disciple. Then Goon and the garden disciple slap palms with each other. Wow, Seven says. It's huge that these two gangs are in the same room together. And for my daddy to be the one behind it? Crazy. He notices us in the doorway. What y'all doing here? Mama inches into the kitchen, looking around. The kids got suspended. Suspended? Daddy says. For what? Seven passes him his phone. It's online already? I say. Yeah, somebody tagged me in it. Daddy taps the screen, and I hear Haley running her mouth about Khalil, then a loud smack. Some of the gang members watch over Daddy's shoulder. Damn, little mama, one says. You got hands. 
You crazy bit, Remy says on the phone. A bunch of smacks and oohs follow. Look at my boy, Daddy says. Look at him. I ain't know your little nerdy ass had it in you, a King Lord teases. Mama clears her throat. Daddy stops the video. I hate y'all, he says, serious all of a sudden. I gotta handle some family business. We'll meet back up tomorrow. Tim and all the gang members clear out, and cars crank up outside. Still no gunshots or arguing. They could have broken out into a gangster rendition of Kumbaya, and I wouldn't be any more shocked than I am. How did you get all of them in here and keep the house in one piece? Mama asks. I got it like that. Mama kisses him on the lips. You certainly do. My man, the activist. Uh-huh. He kisses her back. Your man. Seven clears his throat. We're standing right here. Hey, y'all can't complain, Daddy says. If you wouldn't have been fighting, you wouldn't have to see that. He reaches over and pinches my cheek a little. You aight? The dampness hasn't left my eyes yet, and I'm not exactly smiling. I mutter, yeah. Daddy pulls me onto his lap. He cradles me and switches between kissing my cheek and pinching it, going over and over in a real deep voice. What's wrong with you, huh? What's wrong with you? And I'm giggling before I can stop myself. Daddy gives me a sloppy, wet kiss to my cheek and lets me up. I knew I'd get you laughing. Now what happened? You saw the video. Haley ran her mouth, so I popped her. Simple as that. That's your child, Maverick, Mama says. Gotta hit somebody because she didn't like what they said. Mine? Uh-uh, baby, that's all you. He looks at Seven. Why were you fighting? Dude came at my sister, Seven says. I wasn't gonna let him. As much as Seven talks about protecting Kenya and Lyric, it's nice that he has my back, too. Daddy replays the video, starting with Haley saying, He was probably going to end up dead anyway. Wow, Mama says. That little girl has a lot of nerve. Spoiled ass don't know a damn thing and running her mouth, says Daddy. So what's our punishment? Seven asks. Go do your homework, Mama says. That's it, I say. You'll also have to help your dad at the store while you're suspended. She drapes her arms over Daddy from behind. Sound okay, baby? He kisses her arm. Sounds good to me. If you can't translate parentish, this is what they really said. Mama, I don't condone what you did, and I'm not saying it's okay, but I probably would have done it too. What about you, baby? Daddy. Hell yeah, I would've. I love them for that. Part 4 Ten Weeks After It 21 Still no decision from the grand jury, so we're still living. It's Saturday, and my family is at Uncle Carlos's house for a Memorial Day weekend barbecue which is also serving as Seven's birthday-slash-graduation party. He turns 18 tomorrow, 
and he officially became a high school graduate yesterday. I've never seen Daddy cry like he did when Dr. Davis handed Seven that diploma. The backyard smells like barbecue, and it's warm enough that Seven's friends swim in the pool. Sikani and Daniel run around in their trunks and push unsuspecting people in. They get Jess. She laughs about it and threatens to get them later. They try it once with me and Kenya and never again. All it takes is some swift kicks to their asses. But Devante comes up behind us and pushes me in. Kenya shrieks as I go under, getting my freshly done cornrows soaked and my jays too. I have on board shorts and a tankini, but they're new and cute meaning they're supposed to be looked at, not swam in. I break the surface of the water and gulp in air. Star, you okay? Kenya calls. She's run about five feet away from the pool. You're not going to help me out, I say. Girl, nah, and mess up my outfit? You seem all right. Sikani and Daniel whoop and cheer for Devante like he's the greatest thing since Spider-Man. Bastards, I climb out that pool so fast. Uh-oh, Devante says, and the three of them take off in separate directions. Kenya goes after Devante. I run after Sikani because, damn it, blood is supposed to be thicker than pool water. Mama, he squeals. I catch him by his trunks and pull them way up, almost to his neck, until he has the worst wedgie ever. He gives a high-pitched scream. I let go and he falls on the grass, his trunk so far up his butt it looks like he's wearing a thong. That's what he gets. Kenya brings Devante to me, holding his arms behind him like he's under arrest. Apologize, she says. No! Kenya yanks on his arms. Okay, okay! I'm sorry! She lets go. Better be. Devante rubs his arm with a smirk. Violent ass? Punk ass? She snips back. He flicks his tongue at her, and she goes, Boy, bye. This is flirting for them, believe it or not. I almost forgot Devante's hiding from her daddy. They act like they've forgotten, too. Devante gets me a towel. I snatch it and dry my face as I head to the poolside loungers with Kenya. Devante sits beside her on one. Ava skips over with her baby doll in a comb, and I naturally expect her to shove them into my hands. She hands them to Devante instead. Here, she tells him, and skips off. And he starts combing the doll's hair. Kenya and I stare at him for the longest. What, he says. We bust out laughing. She got you trained, I say. Man. He groans. She cute, okay? I can't tell her no. He braids the doll's hair, and his long, thin fingers move so quickly, they look like they'll get tangled. My little sisters did me like this all the time. His tone dips when he mentions them. You heard from them or your mama? I ask. Yeah, about a week ago. They at my cousin's house. She live in, like, the middle of nowhere. Mom's been a mess because she didn't know if I was okay. She apologized for leaving me and for being mad. She want me to come stay with them. Kenya frowns. You leaving? 
I don't know. Mr. Carlos and Mrs. Pam said I can stay with them for my senior year. My mama said she'd be okay with that if it means I stay out of trouble. He examines his handiwork. The doll has a perfect French braid. I gotta think about it. I kinda like it out here. Salt and Pepper's Push It blasts from the speakers. That's one song Daddy shouldn't play. The only thing worse would be that old song, Back That Thang Up. Mama loses her damn mind when it comes on. Really, just say, Cash Money Records taking over for the 99 and the 2000, and she suddenly becomes ratchet as hell. She and our Pam both go, Hey! to Salt and Pepper and do all these old dance moves. I like 90s shows and movies, but I do not want to see my mom and auntie reenact that decade and dance. Seven and his friends circle around them and cheer them on. Seven's the loudest. Go, Ma. Go on, Pam. Daddy jumps in the middle of the circle behind Mama. He puts both hands behind his head and moves his hips in a circle. Seven pushes Daddy away from Mama, going, No! Stop! Daddy gets around him and dances behind Mama. Uh-uh, Kenya laughs. That's too much. Devante watches them with a smile. You were right about your aunt and uncle, Star. They ain't too bad. Your grandma kind of cool, too. Who? I know you don't mean Nana. Yeah, her. She found out I play spades. The other day, she took me to a game after she finished tutoring me. She called it extra credit work. We've been cool ever since. Figures. Chris and Maya walk through the gate, and my stomach gets all jittery. I should be used to my two worlds colliding, but I never know which star I should be. I can use some slang, but not too much slang. Some attitude, but not too much attitude, so I'm not a sassy black girl. I have to watch what I say and how I say it, but I can't sound white. Shit is exhausting. Chris and his new bro, Devante, slap palms. Then Chris kisses my cheek. Maya and I do our handshake. Devante nods at her. They met a few weeks ago. Maya sits beside me on the lounger. Chris squeezes his big butt between us, pushing both of us aside a little. Maya flashes him a stink eye. Seriously, Chris? Hey, she's my girlfriend. I get to sit next to her. Um, no. Besties before testies. Kenya and I snicker, and Devante goes, damn. The jitters ease up a bit. So you're Chris, Kenya says. She's seen pictures on my Instagram. Yep, and you're Kenya? He's seen pictures on my Instagram, too. The one and only. Kenya eyes me and mouths, he is fine. Like I didn't know that already. Kenya and Maya look at each other. Their paths last crossed almost a year ago at my sweet 16, if you can consider that path crossing. Haley and Maya were at one table, Kenya and Khalil at another table with seven. They never talked. Maya, right? Kenya says. Maya nods. The one and only. Kenya's lips curl up. Your kicks are cute. Thanks, Maya says, checking them out for herself. 
Nike Air Max 95s. They're supposed to be running shoes. I never run in them. I don't run in mine either, Kenya says. My brother's the only person I know who actually runs in them. Maya laughs. Okay. This is good so far. Nothing to worry about. Until Kenya goes, So where Blondie at? Chris snorts. Maya's eyes widen. Kenya, that ain't... That's not her name, I say. You knew who I was talking about, though, didn't you? Yep, Maya says. She's probably somewhere licking her wounds after Star kicked her ass. What? Kenya shouts. Star, you ain't tell me about that. It was like two weeks ago, I say. Wasn't worth talking about. I only hit her. Only hit her? Maya says. You Mayweathered her. Chris and Devante laugh. Wait, wait, Kenya says. What happened? So I tell her about it without really thinking about what I say or how I sound. I just talk. Maya adds to the story, making it sound worse than it was, and Kenya eats it up. We tell her how Seven gave Remy a couple of hits, which has Kenya beaming, talking about, my brother don't play, like he's only her brother, but whatever. Maya even tells her about the Thanksgiving cat thing. I told Star we minorities got to stick together, Maya says. So true, says Kenya. White people been sticking together forever. Well, Chris blushes. This is awkward. You'll get over it, boo, I say. Maya and Kenya crack up. My two worlds just collided. Surprisingly, everything's all right. The song changes to wobble. Mama runs over and pulls me up. Come on, Munch. I can't dig my feet in the grass fast enough. Mommy, no! Hush, girl, come on, y'all too, she hollers back to my friends. Everybody lines up on the grassy area that's become the makeshift dance floor. Mama pulls me to the front row. Show them how it's done, baby, she says. Show them how it's done. I stay still on purpose. Dictator or not, she's not going to make me dance. Kenya and Maya egg her on in egging me on. Never thought they'd team up against me. Shoot, before I know it, I'm wobbling. I have duck lips, too, so you know I'm feeling it. I talk Chris through the steps, and he keeps up. I love him for trying. Nana joins in, doing a shoulder shimmy that's not the wobble, but I doubt she cares. The Cupid shuffle comes on, and my family leads everybody else on the front row. Sometimes we forget which way is right and which is left, and we laugh way too hard at ourselves. Embarrassing dancing and dysfunction aside, my family's not so bad. After all that wobbling and shuffling, my stomach begs for some food. I leave everybody else doing the biker's shuffle, which is a whole new level of shuffling, and most of our party guests are lost as hell. Aluminum serving trays crowd the kitchen counter. I stack a plate with some ribs, wings, and corn on the cob. I scoop a nice amount of baked beans on there somehow. No potato salad. That's the devil's food. All that mayonnaise. I don't care if Mama made it. I'm not touching that mess. I refuse to eat outside. Too many bugs that could get on my food. 
I plop down at the dining room table, and I'm about to go in on my plate. But the damn phone rings. Everybody else is outside, leaving me to answer. I shove a chicken wing in my mouth. Hello? I chomp in the other person's ear. Rude? Definitely. Am I starving? Hell yeah. Hi, this is the front security gate. Aisha Robinson is asking to visit your residence. I stopped chewing. Aisha was MIA at Seven's graduation, which she was invited to. So why did she show up to the party she wasn't invited to? How did she even find out about it? Seven didn't tell her, and Kenya swore she wouldn't. She lied and told her mom and daddy she was hanging with some other friends today. I take the phone outside to daddy because shit. I don't know what to do. I go out at a good time, too. He's trying and failing to Nene. I have to call him a second time for him to stop that atrocity and come over. He grins. You ain't know your daddy had it in him, did you? I still don't hear. I hand him the phone. That's neighborhood security. Aisha's at the security gate. His grin disappears. He plugs one ear and puts the phone to his other. Hello? The security guard talks for a moment. Daddy motions Seven to the patio. Hold on. He covers the receiver. Your mama at the gate. She want to see you. Seven's eyebrows knit together. How does she know we're here? Your grandma's with her. Didn't you invite her? Yeah, but not Aisha. Look, man, if you want her to come back for a little bit of school, Daddy says, I'll make Devante go inside so she won't see him. What you want to do? Pops, can you tell her? Nah, man, that's your mama. You handle that. Seven bites his lip for a moment. He sighs through his nose. All right. Aisha pulls up out front. I follow Seven, Kenya, and my parents to the driveway. Seven always has my back. I figure he needs me to have his, too. Seven tells Kenya to stay back with us and goes toward Aisha's pink BMW. Lyric jumps out the car. Sevy! She runs to him, the ball-shaped ponytail holders on her hair bouncing. I hated wearing those things. All it takes is one hitting you between your eyes, and you're done. Lyric launches into Seven's arms, and he swings her around. I can't lie. I always get a little jealous when I see Seven with his other sisters. It doesn't make sense, I know, but they share a mama, and it makes things different between them. It's like they have a stronger bond or something. But there's no way in hell I'd trade mama for Aisha. Nope. Seven keeps Lyric on his hip and hugs his grandma with one arm. Aisha gets out. A bob haircut has replaced her down-to-the-ass Indian import. She doesn't even try to tug her hot pink dress down that obviously rode up her thighs during the drive. Or maybe it didn't ride up, and that's where it always was. Nope. Wouldn't trade Mama for anything. So, you gonna have a party and not invite me seven? Aisha asks. A birthday party at that? I'm the one who gave birth to your ass. 
seven glances around. At least one of Uncle Carlos's neighbors is looking. Not now. Oh, hell yes, now. I had to find out from my mama because my own son couldn't be bothered to invite me. She sets her sharp glare on Kenya. And this little fast thing lied to me about it. I ought to whoop your ass. Kenya flinches like Aisha already hit her. Mama, don't blame Kenya, says Seven, setting Lyric down. I asked her not to tell you, Aisha. Aisha? She echoes, all in his face. Who the hell you think you talking to like that? What happens next is like when you shake a soda can real hard. From the outside, you can't tell anything is going on. But then you open it, and it explodes. This is why I didn't invite you, Seven shouts. This, right now, you don't know how to act. Oh, so you ashamed of me, Seven? You're fucking right I'm ashamed of you. Whoa, Daddy says, stepping between them. He puts his hand on Seven's chest. Seven, calm down. Nah, Pops, let me tell her how I didn't invite her because I didn't want to explain to my friends that my stepmom isn't my mom like they think or how I never once corrected anybody at Williamson who made the assumption. Hell, it wasn't like she ever came to any of my stuff. So why bother? You couldn't even show up to my graduation yesterday. Seven, Kenya please stop. No, Kenya he says, his sights square on their mama. I'll tell her how I didn't think she gave a damn about my birthday, because guess what? She never has. You didn't invite me? You didn't invite me? He mocks. Hell no, I didn't. And why the fuck should I? Aisha blinks several times and says in a voice like broken glass, after all I've done for you. All you've done for me? What? Put me out the house? Choosing a man over me every single chance you got? Remember when I tried to stop King from whooping your ass, Aisha? Who did you get mad at? Seven, Daddy says. Me! You got mad at me! Said I made him leave. That's what you call doing for me? That woman right there? He stretches his arm toward Mama. Did everything you were supposed to, and then some. How dare you stand there and take credit for it? All I ever did was love you. His voice cracks. That's it. And you couldn't even give that back to me. The music has stopped, and heads peek over the backyard fence. Layla approaches him. She hooks her arm through his. He allows her to take him inside. Aisha turns on her heels and starts for her car. Aisha, wait, Daddy says. Nothing to wait for. She throws her door open. You happy, Maverick? You and that trick you married finally turned my son against me. Can't wait till King fuck y'all up for letting that girl snitch on him on TV. My stomach clenches. Tell him try it if he wants and see what happens, says Daddy. It's one thing to hear gossip that somebody plans to fuck you up, but it's a whole different thing to hear it from somebody who would actually know. But I can't worry about King right now. I have to go to my brother. Kenya's at my side. We find him on the bottom of the staircase. 
He sobs like a baby. Layla rests her head on his shoulder. Seeing him cry like that, I want to cry. Seven. He looks up with red puffy eyes that I've never seen on my brother before. Mama comes in. Layla gets up, and Mama takes her spot on the steps. Come here, baby, she says, and they somehow hug. Daddy touches my shoulder and Kenya's. Go outside, y'all. Kenya's face is scrunched up like she's going to cry. I grab her arm and take her to the kitchen. She sits at the counter and buries her face in her hands. I climb onto the stool and don't say anything. Sometimes it's not necessary. After a few minutes, she says, I'm sorry my daddy's mad at you. This is the most awkward situation ever. My friend's dad possibly wants to kill me. Not your fault, I mumble. I understand why my brother didn't invite my mama. But her voice cracks. She going through a lot, Star, with him. Kenya wipes her face on her arm. I wish she'd leave him. Maybe she afraid to? I say, look at me. I was afraid to speak out for Khalil, and you went off on me about it. I didn't go off. Yeah, you did. Trust me, no, I didn't. You'll know when I go off on you. Anyway, I know it's not the same, but good Lord, I never thought I'd say this. I think I understand, Aisha. It's hard to stand up for yourself sometimes. She may need that push, too. So you want me to go off on her? I can't believe you think I went off on you, sensitive ass. My mouth flies open. You know what? I'm going to let that slide. Nah, I ain't say you need to go off on her. That would be stupid. Just... I sigh. I don't know. I don't either. We go silent. Kenya wipes her face again. I'm good, she gets up. I'm good. You sure? Yes, stop asking me that. Come on, let's go back out there and stop them from talking about my brother, because you know they're talking. She heads for the door, but I say, Our brother. Kenya turns around. What? Our brother. He's mine, too. I didn't say it in a mean way, or even with an attitude. I swear, she doesn't respond. Not even an okay. Not that I expected her to suddenly go, Of course he's our brother. I'm extremely sorry for acting like he wasn't yours too. I hoped for something, though. Kenya goes outside. Seven and Aisha unknowingly hit the pause button on the party. The music's off, and Seven's friends stand around talking in hushed tones. Chris and Maya walk up to me. Is Seven okay? Maya asks. Who turned the music off? I ask. Chris shrugs. I pick up Daddy's iPod from the patio table, our DJ for the afternoon that's hooked up to the sound system. Scrolling through the playlist, I find this Kendrick Lamar song Seven played for me one day, right after Khalil died. Kendrick raps about how everything will be all right. Seven said it's for both of us. 
I hit play and hope he hears it. It's for Kenya, too. Midway through the song, Seven and Layla come back out. His eyes are puffy and pink, but dry. He smiles at me a little and gives a quick nod. I return it. Mama leads Daddy outside. They're both wearing cone-shaped birthday hats, and Daddy carries a huge sheet cake with candles lit on top of it. Happy birthday to ya, they sing. And Mama does this not as embarrassing shoulder bounce. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday. Seven smiles from ear to ear. I turn the music down. Daddy sets the cake on the patio table and everybody crowds around it and Seven. Our family, Kenya, Devante, and Layla, basically all the black people, sing the Stevie Wonder version of Happy Birthday. Maya seems to know it. A lot of Seven's friends look lost. Chris does too. These cultural differences are crazy sometimes. Nana takes the song way too far and hits notes that don't need to be hit. Mama tells her, The candles are about to go out, Mama. She's so damn dramatic. Seven leans down to blow the candles out, but Daddy says, Wait, man, you know you don't blow no candles out till I say something. Oh, Pops. He can't tell you what to do, Seven, Sakani chirps. You're grown now. Daddy shoots Sakani an up-and-down look. Boy? He turns to Seven. I'm proud of you, man. Like I told you, I never got a diploma. A lot of young brothers don't get theirs. And where we come from, a lot of them don't make it to 18. Some do make it, but they're messed up by the time they get there. Not you, though. You're going places, no doubt. I always knew that. See, I believe in giving my kids names that mean something. Sikani, that means merriment and joy. I snort. Sikani side-eyes me. I named your sister Star because she was my light in the darkness. Seven, that's a holy number, the number of perfection. I ain't saying you're perfect, nobody is, but you're the perfect gift God gave me. I love you, man. Happy birthday and congratulations. Daddy affectionately clasps Seven's neck. Seven grins wider. Love you too, Pops. The cake is one of Mrs. Rook's red velvets. Everybody goes on and on about how good it is. Uncle Carlos pigs out on at least three slices. There's more dancing, laughing. All in all, it's a good day. Good days don't last forever, though. That's such an ominous end to the chapter. I almost feel like there's going to be like another drive-by shooting or some sort of really intense Negro trauma drama at the very beginning of the next chapter, which I think is an actual, uh, yep, whole next part of the book. So we'll be starting on part five, which is officially 13 weeks after it the decision that's what we'll be picking up at context of white supremacy uh the hate you give angie thomas her award 
Award-winning, historically popular young adult novel, The Hate You Give. The number to dial if you would like to participate, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone to dial in, you can use the free VOPE line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y, dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y, dot C-C forward slash one race race and that is the number one when you put in that address look on the left of the page you'll see the link for the free vote line click that link it will open a small window on your screen the first line it's a drop down menu select the number that i just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in real name, nickname. Uh, you can press random keys, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us. Same procedure. If you would like to participate, you will see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six one. I will see your hand on the switchboard. We will be able to add you to the line. Two quick things. First, if there are any listeners, certainly if we have any uh, young listeners who have read this book, uh, if you read it for pleasure, if you read it for school, I would absolutely love to hear you like way more than anybody else on the line. <laughs> like uh, just if we have any younger folks, because I'm sure that there are a lot of folks who've had the younger students, children, right, who've had to read this book. So I think that would add a lot to hear what that experience was and what the discussion sounded like in the classroom, what the teacher said about the book. And again, what if you had to write like a paper, right? I would love, even even if we have younger people, if you don't want to, you know, talk, if we have any younger folks who had to write an essay on this book, I would love to know what does an A paper look like, like an A book report look like for the hate you give in the system of white supremacy. So that's one. If we have any younger folks, that would be great. Uh, I guess attached to that, if we have anyone, period, young or no, any non-white people, period, black readers or listeners, if you have enjoyed and or thought that this was a constructive read, like you think, hey, this is something that this is literature that I would want young black children to have, 
for pleasure, for school. I'm excited that they're reading this. I think this would be constructive. You, I just have a different opinion than, you know, Gus and you all. Would be grand to hear from you and what you've enjoyed about the book. That's one. And then the other aspect is that audio clip with Bamboozled, I thought, well, and particularly after I got to hear even more this week, Absolutely. I think that is exactly what could have happened for people. If you got to hear it, just making sure, does that make sense? What I'm positing, the fictional, uh, fictitious scene depicted in Bamboozle where this room of white writers collaborate to edit and write a television, a black television show and they're talking about all of their knowledge and input of black culture from all of these different negro television programs good times and the jeffersons and uh, laughing and blah 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 uh, i'm saying that i think that very situation could have played out with this book and you just change update the cultural reference this does that make sense or is gus just you know talking crazy on the air once again two initial questions and certainly any other thoughts, questions, remarks folks have. Uh, if you dialed in, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Feel free to participate. Hey, Gus, I didn't catch your second question. Can you repeat it for me? I apologize. No worries. The uh, With that anyway, uh, at the beginning of the broadcast, I played a short segment from Spike Lee's Bamboozled. The segment was the scene where it was an entire room of white writers and they were collaborating to write and edit this black television show uh, and in putting all of these racist stereotype, uh, stereotypical projections of black people in this black show. And I'm saying that I think the exact same type of scenario could have played out with this book where a lot of white writers and or editors sat down and had the same type of conversation, the same sort of uh, influence, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and that sort of thing in, in terms of how they constructed this book. I was just seeing if if that fit or if I was making a nutty comparison. That's a great comparison. And um, it kind of goes along with what I kind of wrote down in my notes here. So I'll start off with that. And I was um, trying to get into the dysfunction. Um, the dad is a former gang member who went to jail and who had a child with a woman who was with the man he went to jail for. And um, <laughs> the person, now a white, any white person reading this that's not in the mob or in a, in a biker gang or something would find this decision to be stupid. Like, who, who would leave their kid? Um, the man happens to be the city's largest um, gang leader and drug dealer as well. He lets his son to be co-fathered between this um, drug dealer, gang member, and his wife's cop brother um and his wife's mother let's not forget grandma is um is um has a, some kids with married men and i mean she's so she oh are you with us thomas in new york yes i am i'm still oh. here okay oh. i'm sorry gus hold on my mouth my notes disappeared here. Uh -oh. um, but, um, the, yeah, yeah. Someone was trying to call me, so, you know, the phone face um, changed. I, I, I'm truly sorry. Um, the, 
his mother's um, mother is what we would call a hoe. Um, his son's mother is, seems to like to be a real bougie hoochie type of woman. Um, skirt coming up her butt. She doesn't care. Um, real ratchet talking. Um, the uncle has more power than him. He allows his son to curse his mother out. I mean, I, I don't think I would have allowed that in, under any circumstances, even though the mother is still his mother. He decided to stay in an area where his daughter was involved in the drive-by at the age of, I think, 11. And he's a business owner, so he should have enough money to get out of that area. He thinks living around all the killing and gangsters, keeping it real. He has two children growing up in it, but then he turns around and just tells his son, where I come from, people don't make it to 18. So why would you want your son to live there? Um, so I think that um, these writers were very clever. I mean, this sounds like this could be um, um, power or, um, you know, empire or something. Like, they, they had a whole team of writers um, coming up with this one. Um, the, the term besties before testies, I thought that that was interesting. Um, a minority alliance. Man, if that was only true, I mean, this girl, I think we said last week she was East Indian. I mean, East Indians, with all that, their money and technology, if we had a minority alliance, that would be great. But that's not a reality. Um, fighting white people in the school and no other white people jump in. No one calls the police. It even makes it to social media and no one discusses any racist posts about it because I'm sure... Uh, the white supremacists would have had a failed day with it. Um, and um, last thing I want to say, it was sort of the Oreo effect again. Um, I know this isn't Saturday, so I could use these metaphors. Um, she cries for her two dead best friends who she witnessed die, one by a cop and one by a gangster. And um, then she turns right around and cries for a white girl who was being so racist she had to smack her which started a whole fight that got her suspended. And um, based on the fact that this is such a high seller, and um, just my theory, uh, I think that I predict that her and this white girl would make amends, and somehow this white girl would be deemed as just being ignorant at the end of the book, by the end of the book. And I'll beat my line thus. Thank you. Reconcil reconciliation with Haley by the end of the text, which will be coming up rapidly. I think next Friday, we only got once. So either reconciliation this week or next week with Haley, we'll be on the lookout for that as well. Uh, other folks that we have I'm not heard. Yes, sir. Is this uh, Rob in Wisconsin? Is that you? Yes, it is. Your volume is very low. If you could uh, speak up, sir. Is that better? Not really. Is that better? A little bit. Can you hear me clearly now? Uh, I don't know how, if it's a distance thing or if it's a volume thing, but just if you can make sure you're as close, uh, I guess, as you can to your microphone and then as uh, much as you can project your voice, that would be helpful. Okay. That's better. This... That's better. Okay. Got it. All right. So uh, greetings to the host and the listeners on the line. Uh, I would like to start. Um, I got the text. Uh, as I told you, I was on a waiting list uh, through the uh, technical college that I go to. So uh, it was, 
I waited like two weeks to get the text. Finally got the text. I was reading along with the audio, and as I was reading along, the feeling that I got um, from the way that the vernacular is used in the text, it sounds like it's a white person writing the text. So I would agree with your assessment um, comparing it to the movie Bamboozle. Um, what stood out to me uh, about the fight uh, ending and uh, beginning in the first part of the new section that we started when she said that she may weather her, uh, Mayweather is not a knockout artist, although he has an outstanding record. Um, he's not a knockout artist. Um, so in my uh, area or, you know, people I grew up with or what have you, it would be more of a comparison to, like, if somebody uh, received a hard hit in a fight, you would say, oh, man, he got Tyson or, you know, something like that. Um, so that did sound a little funny, and when the fight was over and they were at home and she uh, was explaining the situation to her dad, and then the dad said, um, oh, you know, put everybody out. i got to take care of some family business. And the interaction between the mother and the dad was very tacky. Like, <clears throat> she... Um, I think she referenced him as an activist and said her man and, you know, what have you. But what really stood out about that is when um, Star basically decoded the um, conversation that the two had, and it sounded to me as if it was a generational pass down of handling, um, settling problems with violence. It was like passing it down from one generation to the next, and that really stood out. Like, yeah, you know, you, I, I would have probably did the same thing. Um, we're talking about a professional woman that's about to make six figures. Um, I don't know many people that's in that position that handle problems with violence. <clears throat> and then... Uh, the next thing that stood out to me uh, was the interaction between Seven and his mother um, at the party. Um, now, um, I like to reference Dr. Welsing uh, when she says that um, it's nothing worse uh, than when a child is produced and the parents are not able um, to take care of the child. Um, and while that interaction was very tacky um, in that situation, um, like my situation is very similar to Seven, and it was um, it it put me in a very emotional place um, while I was reading the text um, because it's such a similar situation, and um, what. Uh, Thomas in New York spoke about like um, he wouldn't allow, he don't think he would have allowed that type of interaction between <clears throat> the, uh, the mother and her son. Um, like in the situations with my mom, you understand what I'm saying? Like um, no one can allow um, me to 
um, interact with her or, like, um, I'll say this. Like, if someone were to interject into a situation with me and my mother, all of that emotional hurt and pain would then be directed toward that person that's interjecting. And thank you for taking my call. Appreciate uh, you sharing, truthfully, uh, Robin, Wisconsin. Again, often in the system of racism, white supremacy, because of the victimization and trauma that uh, has been designed for us to experience. A lot of times it's not things that are necessarily uh, the most fun to discuss, but are important. Understanding, grasping what racism is, how it works and, and just, you know, the terrorism that all of us are experiencing in different ways. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Yes. Oh, Thomas, I mean, yes, Mr. Demery Ford. Yes, ma'am, be heard. Thank you, Gus. Uh, greetings, Gus, and to the other callers and listeners. Uh, getting to the point where I'm uh, starting to somewhat appreciate the book because the author um, kind of skillfully touches on aspects of the black experience. It's not realistic, but uh, nevertheless, it's there. But I'll start out uh, speaking on this coincidence that you would ask the question you did because I was thinking about the parallel between the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and why they would use that show, you know, um, in the book where Chris is imitating uh, the Fresh Prince. Come to find out that a suspected racist, Andy uh, Borowicz and his wife created the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and so along with Quincy Jones, they um, were executive producers. And so in the long run, even though Will Smith may have starred in that, all the reruns and all the uh, profits and everything eventually will be to the suspected racist, Andy uh, Borowicz. So to answer your uh, question, I think that that sets the mood for the exact thing to be happening that you said is happening. Seems like a bunch of people are around. We'll take the opportunity to use this literature to just trash the mind of young uh, black African-Americans. In the book, they mentioned a superstition about when it was raining, the sun was shining, that the devil was beating his wife. I've heard that before, and superstition uh, is one of the things that hold black people back uh, in the sense of the context. If you're a small child and you're talking about beating somebody's wife, I mean, why would you even be thinking in that context in the first place? Those superstitions go on generation after generation. And then when they were exchanging, or uh, Haley brought those pictures of Khalif 
Uh, they mentioned the Thug Shop, which is, I guess, a play on the a so-called mug shot, but pictures and the way media uses uh, lighter or darker shades. They Photoshop uh, individuals like they did in the O.J. Simpson uh, case where he was made to look more sinister than he normally would. Um, Haley represents... I think the consensus of whites, you know, when she made the statement about, you know, she didn't actually say this, but to paraphrase, like, uh, just another dead nigga, you know, uh, the, the more, the better, you know, we get them out of the way. You, you will go end up, uh, in that predicament anyway. It's just somebody took you out of your misery. I guess. The racist views, anyone, can see when she comes out and says it like that. But the more refined races, it's harder to spot. That's why you should be vigilant about what people say and how they react so that you uh, can pick these things up, especially if you're in a compromised position like uh, the protagonist uh, star has been compromised. She's sleeping with a white person. So she's distracted and her thinking has been altered. Um, going, she mentioned going angry black girl on somebody. I guess that's a state of being, you know, if somebody's on the phone can explain that to me. <laughs> I I don't know what she mean. I know that white people try to categorize black women as angry, but I wonder what she meant when she said going angry black girl on that. Yeah, I guess she was talking to Haiti during that time. And then when she hit her and uh, the parents, uh, I think Thomas from New York stated, uh, that no other white people jumped in when she hit Haley. And then the parents saying they would have done the same thing, assaulting a white person physically because of something they said. A racist saying something and causing you to react is not codified. A codified response would not involve physical uh, altercations because uh, chances are it won't come out like it did in the book where everybody gets suspended nine times out of ten regardless of what the white person said. The black person will um, receive the blood or the worst part of the uh, punishment. And if we're in a system of white supremacy, which I believe that we are, then as parents of black child, you know, saying it's okay or insinuating it's okay for a black child to hit a rich white girl, I don't think it's good advice. And uh, especially in this case when she just uh, testified before a grand jury. 
I mean, come on. Uh, the girl is suffering from uh, PTSD, a common disorder among victims. There's no help available. Maverick uh, made some interesting points about uh, not burning down the neighborhood. Uh, but he then he mentioned some confusion when he said uh, that the way that the young blacks were acting thuggish <clears throat> uh, was giving the police, I think it was something like giving them a reason or having them thinking that they can come down here in our neighborhood and do anything, <laughs> you know, like the victims themselves was causing their own uh, mistreatment. And Starr described uh, Aisha's, I think, uh, bob hairstyle in a bob haircut differently than she described her white friend, Prixie uh, Cut. Although the hairstyles are somewhat similar, when she dis- described the black woman, it was more in a negative way that she described her girlfriend. And last, the cultural appropriation that's going on with Chris pretending to be black or a fresh prince, and then Star mentioning cultural differences uh, when they were singing the words to Stevie Wonder's song, Happy Birthday. I think somehow she's missing the big picture. If she can see culture difference in the way that the happy birthday is song, but she can't see anything wrong with a white boy acting like uh, wearing his hat backwards and acting like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and uh, a lot of mass confusion. I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Hmm. Appreciate that, Mr. Demry Four. Uh, again, our well wishes uh, to... Your wife, hope she is recuperating. Run up the bill for the race soldiers. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we've not heard from you at all, if you have uh, commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for letting me share, uh, Gus. Um, I just wanted to just list the, uh, I guess, the stereotypical black culture things that was just uh, that was listed during this, or just spoken of during this segment. Uh, of course, dancing, and with that dancing, you got the the wobble, the cupid shuffle. I guess the biker shuffle. I'm not familiar with that. Maybe I've seen it, or maybe I haven't. Juvenile back that thing up, or ass up, or whatever way you want to say it. Um, Air Max 95, red velvet cake. Of course, having a barbecue, which uh, would have chicken and ribs served. Um, Floyd Mayweather reference. Oh, I forgot about the nay-nay when we're talking about dancing and uh, Kendrick Lamar. But um, And I'll just say that to say uh, a couple of things I wanted to uh, relate that to is that I think this book with I think most the majority of white people have some some sort of Maybe not, but a lot of people, white people have a access, direct access to black people. But, you know, you still have, uh, you know, some white people that are 
they don't come in contact with very many um, black people, but this book would uh, just help them refine their racism. So it, it gives them some type of reference point to say, you know, talk to some black person that they're terrorizing and saying, hey, do you guys do the wobble at your uh, family reunion? Or how about those Air Max 95s? Uh, do you like those shoes? And it just gives them, you know, the people... Uh, I think most white people are aware of these things already. They study us. They are, they're always, um, they have their surve- surveillance, uh, surveillance on us. But, uh, you know, for the ones that may not be so uh, refined, they have some um, some extra stuff to refer to just to, to be able to, uh, you know, practice racism a little better. Um, and also uh, think that, the reason that white people like this book so much is, yeah, they're making all these references and they just like it when black people are focused on these things as opposed to sitting down, thinking, being logical, and trying to solve their problems. And But instead, they really enjoy us, you know, hey, play, let's play some spades. And that's another the other reference they talk to and, and stuff like that. And um, Yeah, and um, lastly, I'd like to say that um, my offspring, my, um, my daughter, I mentioned this book to her, but at the time I didn't know the exact title of this book. It was the very beginning of the uh, the study session. And I mentioned, like, some of the storyline to her, and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I may have read something like that. And I'm like, and, but uh, she told me, and she gave me a title of a book, which I don't remember, but it was different from this book, you know, that we're reading now. But um, the storyline was pretty similar, and, and I, I would like to really, I'll, I'll talk to her and get the, the name of that book if I can and just say, so it's a, a book with a similar storyline, uh, but it's a different book. And But they're really <clears throat> bombarding uh, young adults, children, and even adults with this, uh, with this nonsense. And that's, that's all I have to say. Um, thanks for letting me share again. Hmm. Once you talk to her and get, you know, the title and all that, I would be curious if they got like a whole series uh, of these texts uh, where black people are being shot and killed and they have the whole court drama. And maybe that's, you know, interracial propaganda there, too. Maybe they got some cool white allies like Chris and, you know, they know Tupac or, or Fresh Prince or whatever the show that they use in that book as well. Uh, other folks, anybody that anybody else that we have not heard from at all, uh, who has a hand up, who has commentary? Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir, uh, Jay in St. Louis, but my your volume kind of low. I'm sorry. So is my volume low? It was, but it improved. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Um, thanks. I think uh, everybody brought up good points, and uh, to answer your question, yeah, I think it's relevant. I think it's really, really relevant. Uh, there is an industry for this, and it always has been um, creating the Negro image and projecting back to them. So um, I had taken some notes, and I wanted to try to bring up something other people hadn't brought up yet. Um, a very cliche book, um, but uh, with the fight between her and uh, Haley, it reminded me of a Bringing Down the House with Queen Latifah. Like, just, like, you can literally, like, I think some of the scenes in this book are just, like, literally 
out of movies. Um, the Devil's Day on Friday the 13th. I've never heard that before. I thought that was uh, interesting. Um, then uh, I felt like uh, the gang scene in the living room with the father, I felt like that was kind of like a, a type of racial spectatorship and surveillance and ultimately spectacle. But uh, because this book is not useful, uh, we haven't been able to see, or we haven't been able to, to surveil the real gangs. Um, you know, we haven't been able to look and see what the real gangs are doing, like the police. Uh, you know, there are documents that exist that we can really investigate and see, you know, what, what are they planning? They're the real problems, but never gets brought up in this book. Um, I also thought it was interesting when the mother said to the father, like, she called him an activist and kind of uh, was uh, being very nice to him. While at the same time they're moving and um, they're really living a Western type of lifestyle, enjoying a lot of materialistic games and social mobility. And I just thought it was a weird paradox because when you look at the people who, you know, really dedicated their lives to activism, most of them die or killed. Erica Garner just died. I mean, you know, black activists get found in burning cars with bullets in their heads. So, you know, it's, I thought that was kind of a uh, flat depiction. Um, and uh, the fight, I thought it was a good demonstration of what uh, a man, uh, Matthew Hughey, he's at the University of Connecticut. He's a sociologist. And he talks about how in the early 1920s, uh, black brawn was often contrasted with uh, white brains. I just thought that was interesting when the fight started and the little brother was so superior and superhuman in his strength and competent in, uh, you know, physical combat. So that's all I wanted to say. Thanks. Very interesting. Appreciate that, Jay, in uh, St. Louis. Uh, do we have any other callers that we have totally missed? I've uh, not been able to share it all. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, and all the callers and listeners. Um, the thought when the book began came to mind that the setting was Chicago to me um, because Chicago's been in the news with a lot of uh, violence, etc. And the fact that they talk about the GDs, which to me represents the gangster disciples and the uh, lords, the king lords, which is the vice lords. Because when I think of black people and gangs, I think of two cities in uh, Chicago and Los Angeles. That was the first thing that came to mind. The second thing was that, you know, when I think about what Mr. Fuller talks about in terms of refinement of tactics within white supremacy, this probably, in my mind, I could be wrong, represents kind of a new form of minstrelsy, which is whatever we talk about black people and entertainment, we have to look at it in terms of that context. You know, in the, the cows has gone back and reviewed some books, for example, the uh, showman and slave and PT Barnum at the beginnings of this. And I think these are, just sort of new forms of refinement of that type of thing. And the last comment I had was uh, 
I think, and I'm not a teacher, so I, I don't know. If, if anything can be salvaged out of this book, maybe looking, looking at other pieces of literature to, to, as a comparison may be constructive. For example, looking at other literature about the city of Chicago, such as Raisin in the Sun, which is also a, a play, but it talks about Chicago and racism and white supremacy and gives a different view. So that may be valuable. That's kind of my, my thought about that. And I, I was aware that Lorraine Hansberry was married to a white man, so at least temporarily. But those are my thoughts. Thanks for listening. Indeed, indeed. That's about the same arc that happens in this book. There's not a whole lot of difference. I think I might have even mentioned Raisin in the Sun when I mentioned my list of Negro trauma dramas that I am totally over. Um, I think I mentioned that one because that's about the same thing where the black dad, a la Maverick, is a drunk waste and ruins the family's chances of success by squandering their money on this liquor store. And then they save all their nickels together and move out of their rat infested slum to go live with whites, racists who do not want them there. That's Raisin in the Sun, Lorraine Hansberry, cowbell. Um, <laughs> anybody that we missed? Anybody else that we missed completely? Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Good to hear from you. Oh, this is this is uh, not Chicago, unless I whiffed completely. The author, Angie Thomas, she's in Mississippi. Uh, she says this is loosely based on her experience in Mississippi, where she went to a predominantly white school but lived in the uh, rougher part or predominantly black part of uh, Mississippi. So uh, she, I, I don't think this book is set in Chicago, although I see the parallels with the vice lords and all that. But yeah, I don't think this is supposed to be Chicago, unless I'm mistaken. Retired firefighter. Greetings, everyone. Uh, the first, first, first uh, thing that uh, I want to talk about is this uh, this fight. Uh, I'm looking at first of all the whole idea about how all of a sudden these very wealthy and perceivably powerful white people uh just finding out about this uh about this shooting incident uh doesn't seem realistic to me uh white people in real life would know more about the incident than even miss star would know about it uh, uh from the from the uh the rich wealthy uh white students to their parents, to the administrators at their school, and the principal, of course, uh, would know about it, more about it than what she knows about it, as far as they're concerned. I'm talking about in real time, re uh, realistically. Uh, and there's nothing that she would be able to do to persuade them away from that. Uh, white people have, if there is such thing as racist white supremacy, I can't see uh, what is coming out of this book to be any sort of reality. And then, for, and therefore, uh, uh, with that in mind, uh, they will be waiting for her to be involved into a fight with a wealthy, uh, perceivably powerful 
uh, 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 part of a white family in the school itself and on top of it, another non-white person jumping in on, on the incident as far as they're concerned. And like someone said, also in, in white and other white students won't be involved also uh, to where it would be something like a riot or something, something of that sort and just get three days. No way. No way. And I, I've been in the, I've been involved closely in the school system for a long time. Uh, and that particular, and, and a lot more worse things have happened for a lot lesser situations that are similar to that. Uh, once again, white Jesus uh, gets a pass uh, in the uh, in the in the setting. Uh, he literally almost doesn't have to say anything, and he is and he and for some reason, which I don't think is realistic, also he gets to sit right in on some of the most deepest. Uh, 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 racial, political uh, exchanges, uh, 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 and he uh, just can sit there and lot it all and it just be ignored unless uh, something nice to be said about him. Uh, as far as that, he, don't have, he really doesn't have to articulate anything uh, other than saying maybe a sentence or a word, and then everything, then the, the report would be from. Uh, the uh, quote-unquote girlfriend is, and everything is all right, you know, from behind, from behind uh, whatever that one word or one sentence that he said. First and foremost, a white male, once again, perceivably a part of a powerful entity called a white family, wouldn't even have to go and, and go to the house of a whole bunch of uh, savage niggas and, and, and sit somewhere and, and to be uh, uh, picked over uh, as, 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 as far as their opinions of him. Uh, he can just pick her up somewhere from school and go to his private cottage somewhere and, and, and say and do whatever he would want, you know, as far as realistically is concerned. Uh, 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 but uh, that's all I have to say about uh, the book as, as well as this particular reading. Thank you. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, did we miss anyone? Anybody uh, dial in with a hand up that we've not heard from at all? We got everybody, at least this time around. I had another comment. Your volume is very low, uh, Rob in Wisconsin. If you could speak up. Uh, can you hear me better now? That's better. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> just as everyone was talking. Um, I glanced at the text. I told you I just got my hands on the text, and uh, the cover is very suggestive. Um, black female on the cover um, in Daisy Duke shorts, and she's holding the sign, and the sign is basically covering everything else, so you just see a lot of legs, and then the word thug stands out. And the cover is white, and the black female is uh, heavily melanated. And, uh, yeah, the cover is very suggestive. And the last comment that I wanted to make, the acronym Thug Life. Uh, to my recollection, the um, last letters in the acronym, the F-E, doesn't stand for F everybody, but stands for eternity. So that would be the hate you give little infants.
eternity. And thank you, Neil Milan. Appreciate that clarification. Uh, and I think that's important about the book cover uh, as well. Uh, they they don't have the same artwork on the covers for some of the books that are overseas. Uh, they look substantially different. Like it, it totally doesn't even look like the same uh, book uh, with the, the cover artwork. Like I can post it so you can see the difference uh, in the covers. Uh, did we miss anybody? Got everybody? Figures, can I make another comment, please? Uh, if it can be quick. Sure, I just looked at the cover and she just said in the text that she had a long ponytail and she wasn't going to let her pull her ponytail. So it looks like she she doesn't look like she had that type of hair um, on the cover. I mean, of course, it could be a perm. Um, and I just want to say this is black activism, the way whites want it to look. Sit down with the gangs, you know. No white people have to be sitting around talking about how they're going to fix the problem. I'm with my mind thinking. Indeed. Can I be heard again? Uh, you can. Just give me one second. We, I had a, a listener who okay. uh, wrote a comment in that I wanted to share really quick. Uh, their comment was, and I think this was the educator who first alerted us about this text. Uh, he says, as we get deeper into this book, I can really see why white people love this book. It's just never ending black pain and grief with black people to blame for the cause of their pain. I also noticed that the author has spent a great deal of time highlighting the history of many of the non-white characters in the book. We are almost through the book and we know all about Big Mav, Star, and Khalil, yet we know very little about Officer 115 Haley and Chris. 115 is not even a main character, really. He is just spoken about. I think this book could have been more constructive if the author dug into the present and history of the white characters in a realistic way. All the issues in this book are a result of white people, yet we know nothing about the white characters, and instead, the attention is focused on the problems of non-white people. I don't see why the author bothered to include the killing of Khalil if the if she planned on giving minimal details about the life of the killer or any of the other white person in this book. VGQ, again, Victims Guaranteed Qualification. Victims Guaranteed Qualified. Uh, I guess if I were more confused and I read this book, I would probably think that the problem of racism is black people's fault not white people. I cannot see any white person reading this book and empathizing with non-white people. This book paints an exact picture of the way that white people enjoy viewing non-white people, specifically black people. That is probably why they love the book. Uh, I'm going to try to get in maybe two or three quick comments, and then we'll have to get to the second audio segment because it's a little uh, longer. Some of the chapters are disproportionate. I guess they're a little larger, but we will make time to get everybody's comments in for the second audio segment, and we will definitely get a retired firefighter right when we get through. A uh, couple only quick things that I will get in. I think you all made phenomenal points. Uh, the only uh, quick things that I'll add, uh, I, I did appreciate her saying that white kid goofing off is in a category of its own, even though I think it's far beyond them hopping in a trash can and scooting down the hall. Uh, it'll be like Columbine. The Bad food continued, binge eating of cake and what have you. Uh, the, the whole fight thing, the thing that stuck out to me more than anything was, why is Haley 
in the book like at all like if we just wanted a racist child like okay but Haley is presented as a friend she has not been friendly at any point in the book like it went from racist incident to racist incident to racist incident like there was never a reconciliation for there to even be why are you we you even here now for this event to take place uh i just i think we had talked about that before like what is even the appeal of having her around her mom talked to her about her and talked to a star about Haley and saying you know that girl is wacky to leave her alone uh that came to mind immediately uh let's see the minority act, uh, a minority alliance. <laughs> I think you all did a great job with that. Uh, really repulsive. I think one of the most repulsive moments in the book. I cry for Khalil, for Natasha, even for Haley. Are you serious? Are you serious? <laughs> like, oh my goodness. I, and that's that's one right there that I would say, yeah, to me, I think a white person would write that. Uh, Ratchet, I think Vickers talks frequently, uh, Reckless 2.0, Vickers talks regularly uh, about just black self-respect and not referencing one another as Ratchet. And I think even referencing her mother as Ratchet when she's going to dance like that just to me, that's the way I would think whites would want us to be not to have respect for our black, attempted black mothers and fathers, but to have black children calling their black parents Ratchet. Uh, let's see. Uh, the haircut point I think was great. Uh, where Aisha's hair gets described as a bob haircut as replace has been replaced. A bob haircut has replaced her down to the ass Indian import. Uh, and then all about the hot pink dress. I thought that was a great contrast to Jess's perfect pixie cut. That's so cute. She wants to be in a sexual lesbian relationship with her. Um, and I think I can stop there. We will get to the second audio segment. So we're picking up on chapter 22, chapter 22. Uh, and this is part five, 13 weeks after it. If you have additional comments, just make a note and we should have additional time. Once the second audio segment concludes context of white supremacy, this is the hate you give audio segment number two. Part five. Thirteen weeks after it. The decision. Twenty-two. In our new neighborhood, I can simply tell my parents I'm going for a walk and leave. We just got off the phone with Ms. Ofra, who said the grand jury will announce their decision in a few hours. She claims only the grand jurors know the decision. But I've got a sinking feeling I know it. It's always the decision. I stick my hands in the pockets of my sleeveless hoodie. Some kids race past on bikes and scooters, nearly knock me over. Doubt they're worried about the grand jury's decision. They aren't hurrying inside like the kids back home are probably doing. Home. We started moving into our new house this past weekend. Five days later, this place doesn't feel like home yet. It could be all the unpacked boxes, or the street names, I don't know. And it's almost too quiet. No Fody ounce in his creaky cart, or Mrs. Pearl hollering a greeting from across the street. I need normal. I text Chris. Less than ten minutes later, he picks me up in his dad's Benz. 
The Bryants live in the only house on their street that has a separate house attached to it for a butler. Mr. Bryant owns eight cars, mostly antiques, and a garage to store them all. Chris parks in one of the two empty spots. Your parents gone? I ask. Yep. Date night at the country club. Most of Chris's house looks too fancy to live in. Statues, oil paintings, chandeliers, a museum more than a home. Chris's suite on the third floor is more normal looking. There's a leather couch in his room, right in front of the flat screen TV and video game systems. His floor is painted to look like a half basketball court, and he can play on an actual hoop on his wall. His California king-sized bed has been made, a rare sight. I never knew there was anything larger than a king-sized bed before I met him. I pull my Tims off and grab the remote from his nightstand. As I throw myself onto his bed, I flick the TV on. Chris steps out his chucks and sits at his desk, where a drum pad, a keyboard, and turntables are hooked up to a Mac. Check this out he says, and plays a beat. I prop myself up on my elbows and nod along. It's got an old-school feel to it, like something Dre and Snoop would have used back in the day. Nice. Thanks. I think I need to take some of that bass out, though. He turns around and gets to work. I pick at a loose thread on his comforter. Do you think they're going to charge him? Do you? No. Chris spins his chair back around. My eyes are watery and I lie on my side. He climbs in next to me so we're facing each other. Chris presses his forehead against mine. I'm sorry. You didn't do anything. But I feel like I should apologize on behalf of white people everywhere. You don't have to. But I want to. Lying in his California king-size bed, in his suite, in his gigantic house, I realized the truth. I mean, it's been there all along. But in this moment, lights flash around it. We shouldn't be together, I say. Why not? My old house in Garden Heights could fit in your house. So? My dad was a gangbanger. My dad gambles. I grew up in the projects. I grew up with a roof over my head, too. I sigh and start to turn my back to him. He holds my shoulder so I won't. Don't let this stuff get in your head again, Star. You ever notice how people look at us? What people? People, I say. It takes them a second to realize we're a couple. Who gives a fuck? Me. Why? Because you should be with Haley. He recoils. Why the hell would I do that? Not Haley, but you know, blonde, rich, white. I prefer beautiful, amazing star. He doesn't get it. But I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want to get so caught up in him that the grand jury's decision isn't even a thing. I kiss his lips, which always have and always will be perfect. 
he kisses me back. And soon we're making out like it's the only thing we know how to do. It's not enough. My hands travel below his chest, and he's bulging in more than his arms. I start unzipping his jeans. He grabs my hand. Whoa, what are you doing? What do you think? His eyes search mine. Star, I want to. I do. I know you do. And it's the perfect opportunity. I trail kisses along his neck, getting each of those perfectly placed freckles. Nobody's here but us. But we can't, he says, voice strained. Not like this. Why not? I slip my hand in his pants, heading for the bulge. Because you're not in a good place. I stop. He looks at me, and I look at him. My vision blurs. Chris wraps his arms around me and pulls me closer. I bury my face in his shirt. He smells like a perfect combination of lever, soap, and old spice. The thump of his heart is better than any beat he's ever made. My normal, in the flesh. Chris rests his chin on top of my head. Star. He lets me cry as much as I need to. My phone vibrates against my thigh, waking me up. It's almost pitch black in Chris's room. The red sky shines a bit of light through his windows. He sleeps soundly and holds me like that's how he always sleeps. My phone buzzes again. I untangle myself out of Chris's arms and crawl to the foot of the bed. I fish my phone from my pocket. Seven's face lights up my screen. I try not to sound too groggy. Hello? Where the hell are you? Seven barks. Has the decision been announced? No, answer my question. Chris's house. Seven sucks his teeth. I don't even want to know. Is Devante over there? No, why? Uncle Carlos said he walked out a while ago. Nobody's seen him since. My stomach clenches. What? Yeah. If you weren't fooling around with your boyfriend, you'd know that. You're really making me feel guilty right now? He sighs. I know you're going through a lot, but damn, Star. You can't disappear on us like that. Ma's looking for you. She's worried sick. And Pops had to go protect the store in case, you know. I crawl back to Chris and shake his shoulder. Come get us. I tell Seven. We'll help you look for Devante. I send Mama a text to let her know where I am, where I'm going, and that I'm okay. I don't have the guts to call her. And have her go off on me? Nah, no thanks. Seven is talking on his phone when he pulls into the driveway. By the look on his face, somebody's got to be dead. I throw open the passenger door. What's wrong? Kenya. Calm down, he says. What happened? Seven listens and looks more horrified by the second. Then he suddenly says, I'm on my way, and tosses the phone on the back seat. It's Devante. Well, wait. I'm holding the door and he's revving up his engine. What happened? I don't know. Chris, take Star home. And let you go to Garden Heights by yourself? But shoot. 
Actions are louder. I climb in the passenger seat. I'm coming too, Chris says. I let my seat forward and he climbs in the back. Luckily or unluckily, Seven doesn't have time to argue. We pull off. Seven cuts the 45-minute drive to Garden Heights to 30. The entire drive, I plead with God to let Devante be okay. The sun's gone by the time we get off the freeway. I fight the urge to tell Seven to turn around. This is Chris's first time in my neighborhood. But I have to trust him. He wants me to let him in, and this is the most in he could get. At the Cedar Grove Projects, there's graffiti on the walls and broken-down cars in the courtyard. Under the Black Jesus mural at the clinic, grass grows up through the cracks in the sidewalk. Trash litters every curb we pass. Two junkies argue loudly on a corner. There's lots of hoopties, cars that should have been in the junkyard a long time ago. The houses are old, small. Whatever Chris thinks doesn't come out his mouth. Seven parks in front of Aisha's house. The paint is peeling and the windows have sheets in them instead of blinds and curtains. Aisha's pink BMW and King's gray one make an L shape on the yard. The grass is completely gone from years of them parking there. Gray cars fitted with rims sit in the driveway and along the street. Seven turns his ignition off. Kenya said they're all in the backyard. I should be good. Y'all stay here. Judging by those cars, for one seven, there's about 50 king lords. I don't care if King is pissed at me. I'm not letting my brother go in there alone. I'm coming with you. No. I said I'm coming. Star. I don't have time for... I fold my arms. Try and make me stay. He can't, and he won't. Seven sighs. Fine. Chris, stay here. Hell no, I'm not staying out here by myself. We all get out. Music echoes from the backyard along with random shouts and laughter. A pair of gray high tops dangle by their laces from the utility line in front of the house telling everybody who can decipher the code that drugs are sold here. Seven takes the steps two at a time and throws the front door open. Kenya! Compared to the outside, the inside is five-star hotel nice. They have a damn chandelier in the living room and brand-new leather furniture. A flat-screen TV takes up a whole wall, and tropical fish swim around in a tank on another wall. The definition of hood rich. Kenya! Seven repeats, going down the hall. From the front door, I see the back door. A whole lot of king lords dance with women in the backyard. King's in the middle, in a high-backed chair, his throne, puffing on a cigar. Aisha sits on the arm of the chair, holding a cup and moving her shoulders to the music. Thanks to the dark screen on the door, I can see outside, but chances are they can't see inside. Kenya peeks into the hall from one of the bedrooms. In here. Devante lies on the floor in the fetal position at the foot of a king-sized bed. The plush white carpet is stained with his blood as it trickles from his nose and mouth. There's a towel beside him, 
but he's not doing anything with it. One of his eyes has a fresh bruise around it. He groans, clutching his side. Seven looks at Chris. Help me get him up. Chris has paled. Maybe we should call. Chris, man, come on. Chris inches over and the two of them sit Devante up against the bed. His nose is swollen and bruised and his upper lip has a nasty cut. Chris passes him the towel. Dude, what happened? I walked into King's Fist, man. What you think happened? They jumped me. I couldn't stop them, Kenya says, all stuffed up sounding like she's been crying. I'm so sorry, Devante. This shit ain't your fault, Kenya, Devante says. Are you all right? She sniffs and wipes her nose on her arm. I'm okay. He only pushed me. Seven's eyes flash. Who pushed you? She tried to stop them from beating my ass, Devante says. King got mad and pushed her out the... Seven marches to the door. I catch his arm and dig my feet into the carpet to keep him from moving, but he ends up pulling me with him. Kenya grabs his other arm. In this moment, he's our brother, not just mine or hers. Seven, no, I say. He tries to pull away, but my grip and Kenya's grip are steel. You go out there and you're dead. His jaw is hard. His shoulders are tense. His narrowed eyes are set on the doorway. Let me go, he says. Seven, I'm okay, I promise, Kenya says. But Star's right. We gotta get Vante out of here before they kill him. They just waiting for the sun to set. He put his hands on you, Seven snarls. I said I wouldn't let that happen again. We know, I say but please don't go back there. I hate stopping him because I promise I want somebody to whip King's ass. It can't be seven. No way in hell. I can't lose him too. I'd never be normal again. He snatches away from us, and the sting that would usually come with that gesture is missing. I understand his frustration like it's mine. The back door squeaks and slams closed. Shit, we freeze. Feet thump against the floor, drawing nearer. Aisha appears in the doorway. Nobody speaks. She stares at us, sipping from a red plastic cup. Her lip is curled up slightly, and she takes her sweet time to speak, like she's getting a kick out of our fear. Chomping on some ice, she looks at Chris and says, who this little white boy y'all done brought up in my house? Aisha smirks and eyes me. I bet he yours, ain't he? That's what happens when you go to them white folks' schools. She leans against the door frame. Her gold bracelets jingle as she lifts her cup to her lips again. I would have paid to see Maverick's face the day you brought this one home. Shit. I'm surprised Seven got a black girl. At his name, Seven snaps out his trance. Can you help us? Help you, she echoes with a laugh. <laughs> what? With Devante? What I look like helping him? Mama. Now I'm mama, she says. What happened to that Aisha shit from the other week, huh? Seven? Seven? <laughs>
See, baby, you don't know how the game work. Let Mama explain something to you, okay? When Devante stole from King, he earned an ass whooping. He got one. Anybody who helps him is asking for it, too, and they better be able to handle it. She looks at me. That goes for dry snitches, too. All it takes is her hollering for King. Her eyes flick toward the back door. The music and laughter rise in the air. I tell y'all what, she says, and turns to us. Y'all better get Devante's sorry ass out my bedroom, bleeding on my carpet and shit. Ain't got the nerve to use one of my damn towels. Matter of fact, get him and that snitch out my house. Seven says, what? You deaf too? She says, I said, get them out my house and take your sisters. What I got to take them for? Seven says, because I said so. Take them to your grandma's or something. I don't care. Get them out my face. I'm trying to get my party on. Shit. When none of us move, she says, go. I'll get Lyric, Kenya says, and leaves. Chris and Seven each take one of Devante's hands and pull him up. Devante winces and cusses the whole way. Once on his feet, he bends over, holding his side, but slowly straightens up and takes steadying breaths. He nods. I'm good. Just sore. Hurry up, Aisha says. Damn, I'm tired of looking at y'all. Seven's glare says what he doesn't. Devante insists he can walk but Seven and Chris lend their shoulders for support anyway. Kenya's already at the front door with Lyric on her hip. I hold the door open for all of them and look toward the backyard. Shit, King's rising off his throne. Aisha goes out the back door, and she's in his face before he can fully stand up. She grabs his shoulders and guides him back down, whispering in his ear. He smiles widely and leans back into his chair. She turns around, so her back is to him, the view he really wants, and starts dancing. He smacks her ass. She looks my way. I doubt she can see me, but I don't think I'm one of the people she's trying to see anyway. They've gone to the car. Suddenly I get it. Star, come on, Seven calls. I jump off the porch. Seven holds his seat forward for me and Chris to climb in the back with his sisters. Once we're in, he drives off. We got to get you to the hospital, Vante, he says. Devante presses the towel against his nose and looks at the blood staining it. I'll be all right, he says, like that quick observation tells him what a doctor can't. We lucky Aisha helped us, man, for real. Seven snorts. She wasn't helping us. Somebody could be bleeding to death and she would be more worried about her carpet and getting her party on. My brother is smart. So smart that he's dumb. He's been hurt by his mama so much that when she does something right, he's blind to it. Seven, she did help us, I say. Think about it. Why did she tell you to take your sisters too? Because she didn't want to be bothered, as always. No. She knows King will go off when he sees Devante's gone, I say. 
If Kenya's not there, Lyric's not there, who do you think he's going to take it out on? He says nothing. Then, shit. The car makes an abrupt stop, lurching us forward, then sideways as Seven makes a wide U-turn. He hits the gas and houses blur past us. Seven, no, Kenya says. We can't go back. I'm supposed to protect her. No, you're not, I say. She's supposed to protect you, and she's trying to do that now. The car slows down. It comes to a complete stop a few houses away from Aisha's. If he... Seven swallows. If she... He'll kill her. He won't, Kenya says. She's lasted this long. Let her do this, Seven. A Tupac song on the radio makes up for our silence. He raps about how we gotta start making changes. Khalil was right. Pac's still relevant. All right, Seven says, and he makes another U-turn. All right. The song fades off. This is the hottest station in the nation, Hot 105, the DJ says. If you're just tuning in, the grand jury has decided not to indict Officer Brian Cruz Jr. in the death of Khalil Harris. Our thoughts and prayers are with the Harris family. Stay safe out there, y'all. 23. It's a quiet ride to Seven's grandma's house. I told the truth. I did everything I was supposed to do, and it wasn't fucking good enough. Khalil's death wasn't horrible enough to be considered a crime. But damn, what about his life? He was once a walking, talking human being. He had family. He had friends. He had dreams. None of it fucking mattered. He was just a thug who deserved to die. Car horns honk around us. Drivers shout the decision to the rest of the neighborhood. Some kids around my age stand on top of a car as they shout, Justice for Khalil! Seven maneuvers around it all and parks in his grandma's driveway. He's silent and unmoving at first. Suddenly, he punches the steering wheel. Fuck! Devante shakes his head. This some bullshit. Fuck! Seven croaks. He covers his eyes and rocks back and forth. Fuck! 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 I want to cry, too. Just can't. I don't understand, Chris says. He killed Khalil. He should go to prison. They never do. Kenya mutters. Seven hastily wipes his face. Fuck this, Star. Whatever you want to do, I'm down. You want to burn some shit up, we'll burn some shit up. Give the word. Dude, are you crazy? Chris says. Seven turns around. You don't get it, so shut up. Star, what you want to do? Anything. Everything. Scream. Cry, puke, hit somebody, burn something, throw something. They gave me the hate, and now I want to fuck everybody, even if I'm not sure how. I want to do something, I say. Protest, riot, I don't care. Riot? Chris echoes. 
Hell yeah, Devante gives me that. That's what I'm talking about. Star, think about this, Chris says. That won't solve anything. And neither did talking, I snap. I did everything right, and it didn't make a fucking difference. I've gotten death threats, cops harassed my family, somebody shot into my house, all kinds of shit. And for what? Justice Khalil won't get? They don't give a fuck about us, so fine. I no longer give a fuck. But, Chris, I don't need you to agree. I say, my throat tight. Just try to understand how I feel. Please. He closes and opens his mouth a couple of times. No response. Seven gets out and holds his seat forward. Come on, Lyric. Kenya, you staying here or you coming with us? Staying, Kenya says, her eyes wet from earlier. In case Mama shows up, Seven nods heavily. Good idea. She'll need somebody. Lyric climbs off Kenya's lap and runs up the walkway. Kenya hesitates. She looks back at me. I'm sorry, Star, she says. This ain't right. She follows Lyric to the front door, and their grandma lets them inside. Seven returns to the driver's seat. Chris, you want me to take you home? I'm staying, Chris nods, as if he's settling with himself. Yeah, I'm staying. You sure you up for this? Devante asks. It's gonna get wild out here. I'm sure. He eyes me. I want everyone to know that decision is bullshit. He puts his hand on the seat with his palm facing up. I put my hand on his. Seven cranks up the car and backs out the driveway. Somebody check Twitter, find out where everything's going down. I got you. Devante holds up his phone. Folks headed to Magnolia. That's where a lot of shit happened last... He winces and grabs his side. Are you up for this, Vante? Chris asks. Devante straightens up. Yeah. I got beat worse than this when I got initiated. How'd they get you anyway? I ask. Yeah, Uncle Carlo said you walked off. Says Seven. That's a long-ass walk. Man. Devante groans in that Devante way. I wanted to visit Dalvin, I ain't. I took the bus to the cemetery. I hate that he by himself in the garden. I didn't want him to be lonely, if that makes sense. I try not to think about Khalil being alone in Garden Heights, now that Miss Rosalie and Cameron are going to New York with Miss Tammy, and I'm leaving too. It makes sense. Devante presses the towel against his nose and lip. The bleeding slacked up. Before I could catch the bus back, King's boy snatched me up. I thought I'd be dead by now, for real. Well, I'm glad you're not, Chris says. Gives me more time to beat you in Madden. Devante smirks. You a crazy-ass white boy if you think that's gonna happen. Cars are up and down Magnolia like it's a Saturday morning and the dope boys are showing off. Music blasts. Horns blare, people hang out car windows, stand on the hoods. The sidewalks are packed. 
It's hazy out, and flames lick the sky in the distance. I tell Seven to park at Just Us for Justice. The windows are boarded up, and black-owned is spray-painted across them. Ms. Ofer said they would be leading protests around the city if the grand jury didn't indict. We head down the sidewalk, just walking with no particular place to go. It's more crowded than I realized. About half the neighborhood is out here. I throw my hoodie over my hair and keep my head down. No matter what that grand jury decided, I'm still Star, who was with Khalil, and I don't want to be seen tonight. Just heard. A couple of folks glance at Chris with that, what the hell is this white boy doing out here, look. He stuffs his hands in his pockets. Guess I'm noticeable, huh? He says. You sure you want to be out here? I ask. This is kind of how it is for you and Seven at Williamson, right? A lot like that, Seven says. Then I can deal. The crowds are too thick. We climb on top of a bus stop bench to get a better view of everything going on. King lords in gray bandanas and garden disciples in green bandanas stand on a police car in the middle of the street, chanting, Justice for Khalil! People gathered around the car record the scene with their phones and throw rocks at the windows. Fuck that cop, bruh! A guy says, gripping a baseball bat. Killed him over nothing! He slams the bat into the driver's side window, shattering the glass. It's on. The King Lords and GDs stomp out the front window. Then somebody yells, Flip that motherfucker! The gangbangers jump off. People line up on one side of the car. I stare at the lights on the top, remembering the ones that flashed behind me and Khalil, and watch them disappear as they flip the car onto its back. Someone shouts, Watch out! A Molotov cocktail sails toward the car. Then, Woof! It bursts into flames. The crowd cheers. People say misery loves company, but I think it's like that with anger, too. I'm not the only one pissed. Everyone around me is. They didn't have to be sitting in the passenger seat when it happened. My anger is theirs, and theirs is mine. A car stereo loudly plays a record-scratching sound. Then Ice Cube says, Fuck the police. Coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad cause I'm brown. You'd think it was a concert the way people react, rapping along and jumping to the beat. Devante and Seven yell out the lyrics. Chris nods along and mumbles the words. He goes silent every time Cube says nigga, as he should. When that hook hits, a collective, Fuck the police! thunders off Magnolia Avenue probably loud enough to reach the heavens. I yell it out, too. Part of me is like, what about Uncle Carlos the cop? But this isn't about him or his co-workers who do their jobs right. This is about 115, those detectives with their bullshit questions and those cops who made Daddy lie on the ground. Fuck them. Glass shatters. I stop rapping. A block away, People throw rocks and garbage cans at the windows of the McDonald's and the drugstore next to it. One time, I had a really bad asthma attack that put me in the emergency room. My parents and I didn't leave the hospital until like three in the morning, and we were starving by then. 
Mama and I grabbed hamburgers at that McDonald's and ate while Daddy got my prescription from the pharmacy. The glass doors at the drugstore shatter completely. People rush in and eventually come back out with arms full of stuff. Stop! I yell. And others say the same, but looters continue to run in. A glow of orange bursts inside, and all those people rush out. Holy shit, Chris says. In no time, the building is in flames. Hell yeah, says Devante. Burn that bitch down! I remember the look on Daddy's face the day Mr. Wyatt handed him the keys to the grocery store. Mr. Reuben and all those pictures on his walls, showing years and years of a legacy he's built. Miss Yvette, walking into her shop every morning, yawning, even painting the ass Mr. Lewis with his top-of-the-line haircuts. Glass shatters at the pawn shop on the next block, then at the beauty supply store near it. Flames pour out both and people cheer. A new battle cry starts up. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water, let that motherfucker burn. I'm just as pissed as anybody, but this, this isn't it. Not for me. Devante's right there with them, yelling out the new chant. I backhand his arm. What? He says. Chris nudges my side. Guys. A few blocks away, a line of cops in riot gear march down the street, followed closely by two tanks with bright lights. This is not a peaceful assembly, an officer on a loudspeaker says. Disperse now or you will be subject to arrest. The original battle cry starts up again. Fuck the police! Fuck the police! People hurl rocks and glass bottles at the cops. Yo, Seven says. Stop throwing objects at law enforcement, the officer says. Exit the streets immediately, or you will be subject to arrest. The rocks and bottles continue to fly. Seven hops off the bench. Come on, he says, as Chris and I climb off, too. We need to get out of here. Fuck the police! Fuck the police! Devante continues to shout. Vante, man, come on, says Seven. I ain't scared of them. Fuck the police! There's a loud pop. An object sails into the air, lands in the middle of the street, and explodes in a ball of fire. Oh, shit, Devante says. He hops off the bench and we run. It's damn near a stampede on the sidewalk. Cars speed away in the street. It sounds like the 4th of July behind us. Pop after pop after pop. Smoke fills the air. More glass shatters. The pops get closer and the smoke thickens. Flames eat away at the cash advance place. Just us for justice is fine, though. So is the car wash on the other side of it, black-owned, spray-painted on one of its walls. We hop into Seven's Mustang. He speeds out the back entrance of the old Taco Bell parking lot, hitting the next street over. The hell just happened, he says. Chris slumps in his seat. I don't know. I don't want it to happen again, though. Niggas tired of taking shit, Devante says between heavy breaths, 
Like Star said, they don't give a fuck about us, so we don't give a fuck. Burn this bitch down. But they don't live here, Seven says. They don't give a damn what happens to this neighborhood. What we supposed to do then, Devante snaps. All that kumbaya peaceful shit clearly don't work. They don't listen till we tear something up. Those businesses, though, I say. What about them, Devante asks. My mama used to work at that McDonald's, and they barely paid her. That pawn shop ripped us off a hell of a lot of times. Nah, I don't give a fuck about neither one of them bitches. I get it. Daddy almost lost his wedding ring to that pawn shop once. He actually threatened to burn it down. Kind of ironic it's burning now. But if the looters decide to ignore the black-owned tags, they could end up hitting our store. We need to go help Daddy. What? Seven says. We need to go help Daddy protect the store. In case looters show up. Seven wipes his face. Shit. You're probably right. Ain't nobody gonna touch Big Mav, says Devante. You don't know that, I say. People are pissed, Devante. They're not thinking shit out, they're doing shit. Devante eventually nods. Aight, fine. Let's go help Big Mav. Think you'll be okay with me helping out? Chris asks. He didn't seem to like me last time. Seem to, Devante repeats. He straight up mean mugged your ass. I was there. I remember. Seven snickers. I smack Devante and tell him, shush. What? It's true. He was mad as hell that Chris is white. But hey, you spit that NWA shit like you did back there, maybe he'll think you all right. What? Surprised a white boy knows NWA? Chris teases. Man, you ain't white. You light-skinned. Agreed. I say. Wait, wait, Seven says over our laughter. We gotta test him to see if he really is black. Chris, you eat green bean casserole? Hell no, that shit's disgusting. The rest of us lose it, saying, He's black! He's black! Wait, one more, I say. Macaroni and cheese. Full meal or a side dish? Uh... Chris's eyes dart around at us. Devante mimics the Jeopardy music. How to earn a black card for 300, Alex, Seven says in an announcer's voice. Chris finally answers. Full meal. Ah, the rest of us groan. Whoop, 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 Devante adds. Guys, it is. Think about it. You get protein, calcium. Protein is meat, Devante says, not no damn cheese. I wish somebody would give me some macaroni, calling it a meal. It's like the easiest, quickest meal ever, though, Chris says. One box and you're... And that's the problem, I say. Real macaroni and cheese doesn't come from a box, babe. It eventually comes from an oven with a crust bubbling on top. Amen. Seven holds his fist to me and I bump it. Oh, Chris says. You mean the kind with the breadcrumbs? What? Devante yells, and Seven goes, breadcrumbs? Nah, I say. I mean, there's like a crust of cheese on top. 
We got to get you to a soul food restaurant, babe. This fool said breadcrumbs. Devante sounds seriously offended. Breadcrumbs. The car stops. Up ahead, a road-closed sign blocks the street with a cop car in front of it. Damn, Seven says, backing up and turning around. Gotta find another way to the store. They probably got a lot of roadblocks around the neighborhood tonight, I tell him. Fucking breadcrumbs. Devante still can't get over it. I swear, I don't understand white people. Breadcrumbs on macaroni? Kissing dogs on the mouth? Treating their dogs like they're their kids, I add. Yeah, says Devante, purposely doing shit that could kill them, like bungee jumping. Calling Target Target, like that makes it fancier, says Seven. Fuck, Chris mutters. That's what my mom calls it. Seven and I bust out laughing. Saying dumb shit to their parents, Devante continues splitting up in situations when they clearly need to stick together. Chris goes, huh? Babe, come on, I say. White people always want to split up, and when they do, something bad happens. That's only in horror movies, though, he says. Nah, shit like that is always on the news, says Devante. They go on a hiking trip, split up, and a bear kills somebody. Car breaks down, they split up to find help, and a serial killer murders somebody, Seven adds. Like, have y'all ever heard that there's power in numbers? Devante asks. For real, though. Okay, fine, Chris says. Since you guys want to go there with white people, can I ask a question about black people? Cue the record scratching. No lie, all three of us turn and look at him, including Seven. The car veers off to the side of the road, scraping against the curb. Seven cusses and gets it back on the street. I mean, it's only fair, Chris mumbles. Guys, he's right, I say. He should be able to ask. Fine, says Seven. Go ahead, Chris. Okay. Why do some black people give their kids odd names? I mean, look at you guys' names. They're not normal. My name normal, Devante says, all puffed up sounding. I don't know what you're talking about. Man, you named after a dude from Jodeci, Seven says. And you named after a number. What's your middle name, Eight? Anyway, Chris, Seven says, Devante's got a point. What makes his name or our names any less normal than yours? Who or what defines normal to you? If my pops were here, he'd say you've fallen into the trap of the white standard. Color creeps into Chris's neck and face. I didn't mean... Okay, maybe normal isn't the right word. Nope, I say. I guess... Uncommon is the word instead, he asks. You guys have uncommon names. I know about three other Devantes in the neighborhood, though, says Devante. Right is about perspective, says Seven. Plus, most of the names white people think are unusual actually have meanings in various African languages. And let's be real, some white people give their kids uncommon names, too, I say. 
that's not limited to black people. Just because it doesn't have a D or a lot on the front doesn't make it okay. Chris nods. True enough. Why you have to use D as an example, though? Devante asks. We stop again. Another roadblock. Shit. Seven hisses. I gotta go the long way. Through the east side. East side? Devante says. That's GD territory. And that's where most of the riots happened last time. I remind them. Chris shakes his head. Nope. Can't go there then. Nobody's thinking about gangbanging tonight, Seven says. And as long as I stay away from the major streets, we'll be all right. Gunshots go off close by, a little too close by, and all of us jump. Chris actually yelps. Seven swallows. Yeah, we'll be all right. And we will wrap things up next Friday. The conclusion of Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, Context of White Supremacy. Uh, folks would like to participate. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We have about 30 minutes left in the broadcast. Please do not wait till the last minute. If you have commentary you would like to share, let um, me double check, make sure if there's anybody that we missed completely so that we can get them in. Uh, anybody that we have not been able to hear from at all, anybody that we missed completely have commentary that they wanted to share? Looking to see anybody we missed completely. Not seeing anybody that... Uh, we missed totally. If not, I'll go ahead and start with uh, retired firefighter. I know you had a final comment that you wanted to get in. Thanks so much for your patience. If you want to start things off, proceed. Oh yes, uh, in the last uh, the last report, uh, the whole idea about uh, the meeting with Gaines. Well, like I said, th this is a part of the book that actually. Uh, although it's a, I understand it's a, a fictitious book, but uh, I would assume that the writer or writers uh, were basically on some sort of realism, uh, and it doesn't appear to be that way in this book uh, with the idea of uh, any uh, productivity into meeting with quote-unquote gangs, although there was some valiant attempts, uh, Black Panther Party, uh, in the Los Angeles chapter, as well as with Fred Hampton in the uh, Illinois chapter, uh, who made those attempts. And uh, we know what's going on uh, probably as we're speaking right now in Los Angeles as well as in uh, uh, Chicago. Uh, uh, Jim Brown, uh, who has made that. Now, there, there, may, there may have been some success uh, out of from an individual standpoint, but not as a collective, is what I'm uh, uh, speaking about. Uh, that's that's what I uh, had to say uh, uh, with dealing with the uh, the last report. But with this present uh, report that it just got finished, uh, the whole idea of having a white person uh, 
in close proximity in the middle middle of a quote-unquote riot slash rebellion. Uh, I have been uh, involved from a uh, job standpoint, involved with at least three rebellions down in South Florida. And uh, as far as, and, and everybody just about uh, probably on this line have uh, also have uh, uh, studied or or viewed the uh, the different things that was going on in the uh, the, the quote unquote L.A. riots, uh, where they were snatching white people out of out of cars. They wasn't asking them anything at all. They were snatching them out of cars and beating beating the crap out of them. Uh, and uh, down here in South Florida, they were actually killing white people uh, or people who at least looked like they were white. As far as that concern, uh, so that's not going to happen with Chris in the in the in the, in the car, uh, with uh, the writer's uh, intense desire to make it all right with some white people. Uh, she she or whoever it was was willing to uh, include uh, that particular what I think is unrealistic uh, as far as that concern. Uh, mm, it was something else, but I can't think of it right now unless somebody else move on with it thank you indeed uh ivy i don't think we heard from her first time around if you have commentary you should be with us uh yes ma'am because i actually didn't hear a name i just heard you say her first time around greetings gus and greetings to all the callers on the line gus i wanted to ask you um in the beginning on the first segment i believe you asked a question and i missed it if you did could you repeat it for me I think the two questions, if we have any folks who found the book constructive, they like it, definitely would like to hear from them. And then uh, just if folks saw the relevance with the sound clip that I used at the beginning of the broadcast uh, that was from Bamboozled with the white writers constructing the black show in Bamboozled, saw the relevance between that clip and this book. Well, I actually didn't hear um, the clip or much of it anyway, but I did hear what I thought was your, was at least an explanation of it, that um, they came in and they, uh, the white people came in and, and gave a lot of, you know, input and tried to, you know, take over how everything was going to be. Um, and, you know, that's what they did uh, with this book. But um, I guess the quick commentary that I wanted to give is, um, or observation that I noticed, is it was toward the end of this particular segment when uh, the racist Chris said, um, can I ask a question? And then he asked, why do y'all have um, abnormal names or something to that effect? And um, what struck me was how they tried to make him uh, innocent in practicing racism, where he just politely asked, could I ask a question? And just asked it, um, in, in saying, may I ask the question, he, he asked that very humbly. He said that part very humbly and very uh, innocently. Um, I, in my view, to, to downplay um, him um, practicing racism and to also support this notion that when white people are practicing racism, they have no idea what they're doing and that they don't mean to offend and they don't mean to insult and all these things, which is exactly what they mean to do. Um, but they play this innocent role, like, you know, may I please ask a question and just kind of do it the way they had 
Chris do it in order to um, confuse the victims. And so that's one thing that uh, stuck out to me. And uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Gus. I'll mute my line. Bobby Hurd. Appreciate that, Ivy. Uh, yes, sir, we can hear you, Rob, in Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, but, um, this has been the uh, trashiest section uh, for me. Um, I'll start uh, by her stating that Chris pulled up in her dad's bins. Um, I thought that the reference to the brand of the vehicle was significant. <clears throat> and then uh, moving along to the house, uh, Chris didn't just have a bedroom, but he had a suite. And then he had a uh, not just a king-size bed, but a California king-size bed. And then on that king-size bed, she just threw herself on the bed. And um, <clears throat> it was, uh, I guess, a part where she uh, moved away from the California king-size bed, and then it said that she crawled back to Chris. Um, I thought that was significant, significant as well. And then the part where it was... Um, I would say uh, similar to uh, soft pornography where um, she wanted to engage in sexual activity with Chris and he stopped her. And in that moment, I thought that she started to have a moment of clarity where she said that they shouldn't be together. And um, that part was just like, it was just so trashy. Um, it referenced, am I being heard still? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, it talked about where her hands uh, moved to the bulge in his pants. Um, just uh, very, very tacky. Um, then moving along to uh, the quote-unquote riot and or rebellion, um, she felt in that moment where all of this chaos was going on, Stark felt bad for Chris, saying that she wanted to uh, turn around because she didn't want him to see her neighborhood. And then she went on a long rant about how the neighborhood was uh, just as poor as it was. Um, another note that I have, and this is maybe out of order a little bit, but it said that uh, King rises off his throne, and then Aisha turned his back to him, and that's the view that he really wanted to see. And then uh, the part about throwing a Molotov cocktail and then the crowd cheered, uh, to me that translated to chicken and watermelon. And um, it was the part where they referenced uh, Officer 115, and it talked about, instead of talking about um, the, the systemic systemic problems uh, within the uh, police department within the United States, it talked about uh, bad apples. And then um, what I'll end with is the NWA reference. Um, we're there in the midst of this chaos, and you know, they chanting F the police and all of that. And uh, to me, that translated to um, bring
bring the niggas with the banjos. And I need my line. Thanks for taking the call. Appreciate that, Rob, in Wisconsin. Uh, other folks, if you dialed in, if you have a hand up, commentary to share, line should be open. Yes, sir. Gosh, I'm, I'm very angry with you, Gus, um, for playing that. <laughs> and I'm angry at myself. My heart is mad at my brain for listening to it. And I'm mad at all the callers for experiencing that life-changing reading with me. Um, that that was like, like I, I remember where I was when Michael Jackson died and when OJ got off. I'm going to always remember <laughs> everything about this reading because that was how bad it was. It was terrible. And, um, man, I'm going to start off by saying this. The guy who, um, the, one of the gentlemen who called in earlier, you know, I was thinking about what he said. He never mentioned this guy's name, 115. It's like they dehumanize him, you know, sort of like people in a prison slave plantations, um, where they just give them a number to dehumanize them. Um, and um, the number of places they name, you know, it's like it takes them out of society. But that just took him right out this book. Uh, he's not in it. Um, he's just 115. Um, he's, all you know about him is just um, what his father said. And it's just like in real life. I mean, when um, all you knew about um, Darren Wilson was whatever interviews family members gave and co-workers, I mean, you didn't get any real information from him or anything. Um, when this white boy apologizes for white people, and Chris gets a, you know, I mean, he gets a real taste of the hood. Like, you know, he lives in, he lives the Bel Air life. He got a taste of West Philly. You know, um, she, she jumps in the car and he jumps in the car. You know, um, I'm going with you. You know, she gets out the car, he gets out the car. You're not leaving me here. Um, it, it's just so unrealistic. Um, now, he gets into a fight at the school. All these white people trying to protect his sister. But if he's in a situation where he's with his sister, who he knows Kane is after, and he's going to let her get out the car and go in King's house. I mean, um, it's just it's just terrible to me. It's the writing, it's just the concept. It doesn't sound like someone who lived this would write this um, at all. It sounds like exactly what white people would think about us. Um, you know, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know how many people could stop me from trying to protect my mother. But um, a pop song plays, and it's all about change, and the whole mood of the the beast change. Um, so he pursues him, and he, he's able to think rational um, because he heard this Tupac song. And I don't know how many people that 16 in high school know the lyrics to F the Police, um, word for word. Um, know all these old Tupac songs. I mean, my kids are like, eh, why are you listening to that old music? It, it, I, they treat me like they, I treated my mother. I mean, it's I don't. It's just so unrealistic to me. And we don't live by this music. Um, we don't live by the, all this food. Um, the whole talk about the macaroni and cheese and he eats it out the box. And, you know, like it's just tacky to me. I'll mute my line. Thank you, Gus. 
all the folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have commentary on the second audio, feel free. Any folks that we missed completely? Any other folks that have Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, this is Jake from STL. I just wanted to say uh, the second half has uh, really been terrible. And uh, I think this book is uh, psychic. Uh, we, we should consider this as an attack. I can't believe like children are studying this. Very, very deviant. And we have yet to penetrate you know, the real issue here. Um, we never have got back to the real problem. Um, yeah, the, the soft course uh, sex scene, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's hard to take in. A lot of first-person narration, so the trauma that she's describing is supposed to be kind of imagined by the people reading this. This is some weird, weird weird but it's propaganda uh of the highest order so that's all i wanted to say important term in context of this book i think in this reading propaganda indeed uh other folks have commentary loud be heard yes sir okay uh uh i would like to um start out by saying that uh, <clears throat> the book, although it's, you know, trying to show some black experiences, it's not really, you know, if it's uh, designed for young adults, I don't see anything in there like teaching them anything, you know, any basic concepts of, you know, like honor and uh, pride or, uh, you know, anything that they could grasp and, and go on with. And also, um, everything, uh, associated with, uh, the black people is negative. It's trash in the neighborhood or shooting, it's rioting, you know, everything in white neighborhoods are pristine and it's nice and, you know, that type of imagery uh, in reading for young adults, you know, can give them a false impression. Uh, it's something that uh, Maverick said, I think it, it may have slipped my mind. He was talking to his daughter and he said something uh, pretty uh, profound, but I think they're all missing the, missing the point because a white policeman has killed an unarmed teenager and King all of a sudden is the villain in the book. So I think that even young people can kind of pick this up. It's, it's kind of, uh, off track and, uh, I'll mute my line, give somebody else a chance to get one last word in. Thanks, sir. Indeed. <clears throat> Even something is important about the, the names of that. We don't really have a consistent naming uh, for the race soldier. It's just 115. King. The significance. King. Other folks that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary, 
Can I be heard again? Uh, we got retired firefighter. Uh, I can make sure we get you if you have extra comments you want again. Just anybody that, that didn't get to, to comment second time around? Did we miss anybody? Grant. Assume we got everybody. Uh, before I get retired firefighter, just a couple quick comments that I had on the second session. Uh, it, the book in general, I mean, has been trashy all the way, so it would surprise me if it were less trashy on the home stride. I mean, this is the climax, so, you know, there should be uh, an intensification in trashiness, I would think, as we get to the conclusion. And I thought, I think none of us were surprised. We all thought that 115 would not be indicted and the subsequent Negro hooliganism. I think all of that was, you know, not that much of a surprise. Some of the things that stood out to me in the second portion Let's see. <clears throat> the portion. Where, in fact, before I even get to some of the things that I highlighted, I have the ebook of this text, which is the case, you know, often when we read uh, and we talk, well, a few times, even some of our guests have talked about the difference between having an ebook and an actual hard copy. One of the cool things that you can do when you have an ebook is you can just do a word search. And so you can quickly see the way that particular terms or words are used. What I did, because some of the words that have stood out, just their word usage in this text, the word perfect and the word normal, I just did a word search for the word perfect to see what I got. So the word perfect is used 19 times in this book. Uh, some of the times that the word perfect is used, chapter 11, Jess, white female, with her perfect Pixie Cut is the only one there eating cheese fries and reading her phone. Next time, Perfect comes up. Chapter 17, Chris, Chris's eyes are soft and perfect. Uh, continuing, she talks about this week, the doll has a perfect French parade that, that uh, Devante did. Uh, seven's name, the number of perfection. <clears throat> Uh, I ain't saying that you're perfect, Maverick tells Seven. Nobody is, but you're the perfect gift God gave me. Star to Chris, I kiss his lips, which always have and always will be perfect. Uh... Next perfect, just a few paragraphs down, his eyes search mine, star, I want to, I do, I know you do, and it's the perfect opportunity. Uh, I could stop right there, but I think you get the gist. The word normal also is fascinating if we uh, had more time, but just the numbers of time. In fact, that was the first thing that I highlighted in chapter 22. She says, I need normal. I text Chris. And that is not the first time in this text that normal and Chris are equated. Normal and whiteness. In fact, when the whole name situation came up at the end of the chapter, I was like, my goodness, how many times has she said Chris, white boy, is normal? Why is it strange that he thinks these black names, Devontae, are not normal? They're not white sounding names. Well, I mean, it's almost sounded hypocritical to me. Uh, next. Uh, the Oh, my God, there were so many moments where you could just I could just vomit during this portion that very much sounded like something that a white, a racist 
would write uh, Chris's apology on behalf of white people everywhere. Are you serious? Like, oh my God, vomit moment number one. Um, continuing when they're talking about Star and Chris, when they're talking, when she says we shouldn't be together, I didn't even view that as a momentary instant of clarity for her because she wasn't saying we shouldn't be together because of the system of white supremacy or I think you're racist. It was we shouldn't be together because you have a lot of money and I don't. It almost sounded like it's not race. It's a class thing. It's a money thing. That's not the issue at all. That he has a lot of money. The issue is racism, white supremacy. But she's not, you know, getting that at all. And I mean, that brief, even so-called moment of clarity disappears quickly. I also just found it super degrading that this transition from all of the like you don't have uh chris and star when they're together and they're having their wonderful night at ihop and the soft porn moment there in the limo like it doesn't get interrupted by white trashiness that happens all the time in this book when black people are together having fun when they're watching the basketball game and the house gets shot up they're at the funeral and the gangsters come in like every time like the black people are together there's some interruption and niggerous niggerism has to to break out and black people are fighting and just being tacky and trashy every single time that does not happen when star is with whites i think just that alone gives a devastating uh depiction of black people and why and just how you think about it. it it could lead one to think the safe place to be is with whites uh some of the other things that i highlighted quickly oh the word normal i highlighted again uh my uh the thump of his heart is better than any beat he's ever made my normal in the flesh white flesh cry I mean in my view these are crushing these these are the types of things because nobody picked nobody said any of these things i think you would need the text right to be going through to highlight these sort of things in my view these devastating these are just little bits of poison that go into the black brain computer every time you read this sort of thing or when you're watching this sort of trash on television and it has an extraordinary impact on your thinking especially for young black people their minds are still developing these anti-black concepts are being planted in 11 year olds 12 year olds 13 year olds that can have a lifetime of damage in how you think about black people and how you think about whites. Perfect Jess and her pixie cut. Uh, anything else I want to make sure I get in? The whole way that uh, Devante's mom talked to him was just so disgusting. Uh, the anti-blackness again. I mean, that is... I mean, just to normalize that as this is the way that we should think of black parents, black mothers relating to their black children, that this is normal. This is the the authentic Negro experience of, you know, black parenting. I mean, that's disgusting. Uh, and even in the instances where that is the case, that's because of racist man, racist woman, racist child. But that's not picked out at all. Uh, the last thing I'll get in. 
the green bean casserole. Uh, I, there were many other things. I, I, was, I thought that was so repulsive. That was vomit moment, like number 5,082 for the text uh, when the riot scene was basically Negras out in the street chanting rap lyrics, the roof. I mean, oh my God. Like That's what I said. White people sitting down at a table and just recounting Negro cultural references as they edited and or outright wrote this book. I'll stop there. Do we have anybody uh, final comments they wanted to get in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, um, quickly. Um, just, uh, I guess, <clears throat> doing a, again, as people refer to the soft porn scene, I guess um, Star asks Chris, hey, do you think, um, I guess, will the police or the <clears throat> enforcement um, official, will he be convicted? And she asked him, does he think so? And he did not answer. He just deflected and just asked her the question. Like, he didn't even bother to try to answer the question. And um, and I was just, I was going to mention about the food, too. Like, they're trying to, uh, I guess, give this guy a, quote, unquote, like, black pass, and he's light-skinned, and, uh, yeah, the macaroni and cheese. And it was, yeah, it was really uh, pathetic. Um, thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir, retired firefighter. Yes, uh, I don't understand. It's a classical uh, cliche that white people truly understand it confuses black people, non-white people, especially black people, in a way that uh, it would uh, make that non-white black person think that uh, white people are all right or this particular white person is all right. Uh, and it's the biggest lie in the world. And But white people truly understand it, especially the, the more refined people, uh, such as this character that is called Chris. I would reiterate from the standpoint of formerly being a firefighter and being on uh, – riots, being involved with riots, uh, the whole idea uh, that was depicted in the uh, the readings is unrealistic uh, as far as fires are concerned. Uh, most businesses have a common roof, and I may, I may be crazy enough to set a fire somewhere in a building, and it was spread to that building where the non-white black person has a business. Uh, we all know what took place in the uh, Philadelphia incident, the move incident, although this was a residential area. Uh, the fire was was uh, created by uh, law enforcement, as we know, and it ended up burning down a whole city block where non-white people stay at. Uh, and the same thing happens in the uh, the business district, quote-unquote, uh, 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 as I mentioned, most, most businesses have, they have a common roof, and it's not going to stop burning for the most part doing a riot. Uh, the fire department will not go to the fire because of the idea they would be shot at from that standpoint. Uh, so the, and, and, but although a lot of the uh, white coworkers uh, that was uh, with me and around me, they had guns. Uh, but they're not supposed to uh, have guns, but they all of them had guns as far as they're concerned. Uh, but uh, 
just all in all, you know, unrealistic uh, from that standpoint. And, uh, yes, I understand the old situation where Chris is nauseating, and I think whoever wrote this, they did that on purpose. Oh, yeah, one more thing. Tanks do not come at the, at the immediate opening of a rebellion. Uh, it takes a while for the governor of that state to allocate uh, the National Guard to move in. It takes some, like, 48 hours for that to take place. It made it seem like in this particular instance that they were there right at the <laughs> beginning of the rebellion. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I just want to say to um, Mr. Demery for I hope that your wife is uh, recovering well, and I wish you both the best. And I had two quick, two quick questions for you guys, if, if I if I may. Uh, the first one is, um, it, do you think that it's possible that the I, I believe it will start with Chris saying that um, we shouldn't be together because I ha because you have more money than me or something like that. That she could have possibly saying that she could have possibly been saying that I am unworthy of you, and so there, so that was that uh, worship moment again of just the propaganda of, of worshiping white people? It could have been. Uh, I mean, she, she definitely, in that comparison, made sure to emphasize the enormous wealth that they had in comparison to their absence of their lack of having anything that their, you know, entire residence could have easily fit into his, you know, closet or bathroom space or what have you. So it, it absolutely could have been that, you know, I'm not even worthy of you type thing. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be together cause I'm not worthy of being with you. Yeah. That sounds like a real denigrating uh, comment that my whatever could fit into your whatever. My other uh, quick question was, uh, are, is there any update on uh, Pam? Uh, I have, she has uh, not emailed me. Like she just uh, gave me an email update, you know, from time to time, just, you know, trying to deal with getting back healthy and taking care of herself. I have not heard from her uh, in a few weeks and I uh, just try to call and leave uh, voice messages to let her know that, you know, we are thinking about her, concerned about her, but no, I have not been able to directly uh, communicate with her. Okay, thank you, and Pam, uh, we miss you, and we wish you the best, and that's all I had on my line. Thanks, Gus. Indeed, here, here. Love, concern for uh, for Pam. Uh, do we have a final comment uh, where a person can take 30 seconds or less? I do. Yes, sir, Robin, Wisconsin. Hello. Uh, uh, the person who spoke up can go. Oh, yielding the floor. Did the caller, other caller who just spoke up, did you want to go ahead? Oh, thank you, Rob. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say, um, King, King like um, Martin Luther King, a black leader, um, a leader of black people, King, a leader of a black king, and um, like Rodney King with um, the cops getting off. Uh, and what the firefighter said earlier, uh, Reginald Denny, that was a black uprising of unconfused victims as far as knowing who the enemy is. If any white person we walked through that area, driving through that area, we were getting it. The property was getting damaged, car, whatever. And um, here this guy is just walking through, sending at the police with the black people, humming along, just not saying nigger. Context of white supremacy. 
Uh, we will wrap things up next Friday. We should be all done. Uh, Angie Thomas, the hate you give. We can get our concluding remarks in and move on to something way, way, way better. Although, again, I do think this is very important. Uh, if anybody, uh, children, if you have offspring, or they don't even have to be your children. If you know younger black people, if they read this book, uh, have talked about it, familiar with it, would be great to get their thoughts uh, for the final uh, broadcast. Uh, if you want to write in any comments, untiljustice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com drop an email and we can read your commentary on the air uh next week for the final book study on angie thomas's allegedly the book authored by angie thomas the hate you give uh and and i'll add an addendum if you know of black people because it seems that there are a you know significant number of black people who think that this is a great text uh that would be interesting as well to hear their thoughts. Uh, also, there is a white person who apparently listened to at least one episode of The Cows where we talked about this book, and they wrote a review uh, of Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give, where they critique the book, uh, offering some of the similar critiques that have been shared on this program, and they cited The Cows, even though this is written by a suspected racist. I thought that was interesting as well. I can share it. A listener emailed it to me, but I can post that if people want to check that out. Again, I will suggest encourage listeners. If you have participated in the book club, especially if you've been like calling in and sharing your views and what have you, which is great, uh, write a review. Uh, I'm going to make an effort to make time this week uh, to do that. It doesn't have to be super long, right? It doesn't have to be, you know, like 50 pages or anything. You can, uh, you can, it could be one paragraph. I mean, it could be very short, uh, 500 words. It doesn't have to be a long thing at all. Uh, it could be, you know, just short, right to the point, whatever you think were the main, you know, one or two points that you would like to convey uh, about this book. But I think that would be great. Uh, it, apparently there are a lot of younger black people who are being forced to read this book they might do a search online you know for some information get some help right for the text they might find your book review might even listen to a podcast or two talking about the text you never know let's write something could be short and if you write a review and email it to me i will post it on my blog uh, just, I might do, you know, spell check or what have you, but other than that, I will post it. If you want to write it in, just don't do any name calling, uh, right. That sort of thing. I will share it on uh, my blog. That said, we'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 PM Eastern, 6 PM Pacific. Looking forward. We'll review what's gone down last seven days. Way more things happened than just the Starbucks incident. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. I know it's Friday and getting warm. It's still, uh, here on the West coast. Sun has not gone down, still bright, so I know folks are ready to be out frolicking, enjoying the increasingly warmer weather. Still need to be codified. Racists do not stop terrorizing black people just because the weather <coughs> is warm. Uh, I would encourage sobriety would be best, especially under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, we should do everything that we can to maintain healthy well-functioning brain computers so that we can make phenomenal decisions, come up with new concepts, solutions to the problem, the system of white supremacy, racism. Uh, go out, have fun, just make sure you stay codified. Certainly, if you're going to be in a vehicle, 
sober and buckled up, driver or passenger. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.